Inshallah, we are on Surah Bakra. Inshallah, we are on Surah Bakra, verse number 194. Here, if you remember, we left you off in verse number 193. It was talking about a particular incident when Sahabi Kram and Sayyidina Rasulullah had gone, had attempted to go for Umrah, and the Mushrikeen of Makkah Makarma had fought them. Now what it's mentioning is that What happened is that Sayyidina Rasulullah Wasallam in the year 7 Hijri, this is the second incident. Now, this is why we stopped there. You won't realize again because the verses are coming right after one another. The incident that was done up till yesterday in verse 193 was a separate incident. Now from verse 194 is being indicated a different incident. And that was in the year 7 Hijri. After Sulla of Hudaybiyah, Sayyidina Rasulullah Wasallam left with Sahaba Ikram from Makkah Mukarramah. And this was again in the days of the pilgrimage. So what Allah SWT is saying in the Quran al-Kareem is that they should not have violated. These were months that were viewed. These are the months that are known as to be sacred or inviolable months. And there's four months. Zikada, Zulhijjah, Muharram, and Rajab. So these three months come together. Zulqada, Zulhijjah, and Muharram. And then later on, as all of you know, right before Shaban was the month of Rajab. These four months were months that in pre-Islamic Arabia were viewed as sacred, inviolable, having sanctity, one in which blood should not be spilt. And Sayyidina Rasulullah had kept up with this ruling, and Allah subhanahu wa had made it part of the teachings of Qur'an al-Kareem, that we will honor this sacrality of these months. But what happened was, is that these, it, would it read, the translation should really read as the sacredness of this month, will be honored if the other side also honors the sacredness of this month. So the sacredness of this month must be mutual. That's what the ba is there for. The ashahr al-haram bishahr al-haram. The sacredness of the month is for the sacredness of the month. Means that, simply speaking, if they violate the sacredness of this month and they attack and they fight you, then you are allowed to fight back. Right? And what this may be in a shara, that perhaps the... Mushrikeen of Makkah, when they heard that in Qur'an al-Kareem, Allah subhanahu wa also decreed that these months are special and inviolable, so they thought the rookie will attack them in these months, and now their own deen tells them that they can't fight us, so this would be the best way to attack them. So Allah subhanahu wa revealed this verse to say, no, if they attack you, you may attack them back, and the whole explanation of that, of attacking and attacking back, came before yesterday, right, in the verses, the ayat that preceded, and a little bit is going to come again. What it really means is the violation of sacred things will result in retribution. So you have to sometimes, that's the way the Arabic language is, that the alif lam al actually is an iwas, is substituting for a longer preface. So it means the violation of sacred and inviolable things, in this case months, will lead to qisas, which means will lead to retribution and retaliation if that sacrality is violated. 
So in simple terms, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying that if they break the rule, that you can also break the rule and engage them in battle if they engage you in shas. Now yesterday you saw you, this word without the ta. Right? So the root of this word is actually When it comes without the ta, it means enmity. It means to harbor a feeling of enmity. When it comes with the ta, it means to do an action on the base of that enmity, which you can translate in English as aggression. So that, so Allah Ta'ala is saying that whomsoever, addressing mu'mineen, whomsoever is aggressive alaykum towards you, فَاعْتَدُوا alayhi, Then you should return that, be aggressive against them, بِمِثْلِ مَعْتَدَى alaykum, In only the same level of aggression that they had for you. Don't fight back. If they kill 1,000 of yours, don't drop a nuclear bomb on them. Right? For example, the, this ayah of Qur'an would have taught the Americans that after Pearl Harbor, you don't nuke Hiroshima and Nagasaki. You don't do that. If somebody is aggressive with you, return that, retaliate. There is retaliation for aggression. But the retaliation will be the mythal, will be the like of that aggression. If two buildings in one of your cities go down, don't proclaim wars on entire countries. Alright? So, this is the Quranic teaching of warfare. Wattakullah and fear Allah subhanahu Look how tight, and I did this for yesterday. Look how tightly Allah ta'ala controlling the laws of warfare. He knows that in the heat of battle, the warrior, the soldier, in the heat of battle, and they're often given, they're pumped up, and they're revved up, Allah subhanahu wa and they may end up being more aggressive than they were aggressed against Allah subhanahu wa saying, no, what's going to keep the kurb on you? Wattakullah. Allah, what it means here, is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is initially telling sahaba, when mushrikeen in Makkah have aggression towards you, if you retaliate more than the aggression they had to you, you are more aggressive against them than they are to you, you will have to call to account to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Ya Allah, they're mushrikeen, these are sahaba. Allah ta'ala says, no, these are my laws. Even if a sahaba becomes more aggressive towards a mushrik, because Allah Ta'ala said, don't be more aggressive, Allah Ta'ala won't look that this was a sahaba and this was a mushrik, Allah Ta'ala will look that this was my hukam, do not exceed the bounds, and if you exceed it, you will have to count to Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala, so better that you fear Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. And know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is with the muttaqeen. What does that mean? You may rationally think in terms of military strategy that we have to be more aggressive with them than they were with us. No. Follow the commandments of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Respond and retaliate in like and in kind. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's mother then will be with you. And it's His mother that is going to bring triumph, not your superior military aggression. Right? One figu fi sabilillah. And now comes another ruling pertaining to jihad, that there has to be spending for the war effort. The nation state has done this in the name of taxation and defense budget. Right? It's the same thing. It's the same thing. So for that, and what is the effort here? Again, to repel aggression with likeness, to eliminate that fitna. That's what we did yesterday. To eliminate that fitna and to establish deen. Right? For that purpose, you should spend wholeheartedly, heartedly in the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. وَلَا تُلْكُ بِأَيْدِيكِمْ إِلَى تَحْلُكَ What this literally means is do not place yourself by means of your own hands into ruin and into destruction. In other words, your own actions. Now, this could mean two things. Number one, it could mean, it could actually mean four things. Number one is pertaining to the spending, the wealth, the expenditure, 
fi sabilillah, and number two is the actual aggression fi sabilillah. If it's pertaining to the wealth, it could mean number one, that don't spend so much that you become weak in other areas. Don't make your defense budget 80% of your budget and then your education and everything else becomes weak. Second, it could mean that don't spend so little that your defense budget isn't enough and then you're weak and you can't repel that aggression when it comes and you can't snub or eliminate that fitna when it comes. However, this could also be referring to the jihad, and actually it's referring to all four. This is one of the features of Qur'an al-Kareem that Allah subhanahu has deliberately used words that are what we call muqtamul ma'ani, that contain multiple meanings in them. Third meaning then is if it's related to jihad, that don't exceed the retroactive aggression with your own hands through military aggression. Don't exceed what Allah Ta'ala said, the mithal, because then you will bring yourself to tahluka, you will bring yourself to ruin, destruction means defeat. If you keep to it, inna Allah ma'amuttaqeen, Allah will give you victory. And if you exceed it, you will end up in defeat, even though you think you use more force. Don't use excessive force, Allah Ta'ala is saying in the Quran. The Pentagon can't understand this. Hmm? <laughs> even the words they use for their wars, right? Storm and blitz and hellfire, Allah Akbar. That's their misas, Right? The Qur'anic laws of military engagement are the most just laws of military engagement in the entire history of humanity. Alright? Last meaning it may do, and don't fail to repel that aggression. Very important meaning. Don't let yourself become so weak and lax in financing or ability or action of jihad that you're unable to repel that aggression, that fitna, and that fitna that is worse than qatul becomes ghalib over you. So in both things, what we call ifrat and tafrit, don't, don't be excessive and don't be less in your spending, and don't be excessive but don't be less in your military action and your, in your aggression as a response to repel the aggression of the aggressor and the fitna of the one who is spreading that sedition. Wa'asinu, and you must do what is noble. So this comes from husan. Husan means what is beauty, what is virtuous, what is noble, what is excellent. So in terms of this activity, you must be noble and virtuous. What in the English language, they would use the word chivalry. In terms, you should have chivalry as a warrior. You should be noble. You should be just warrior. Inna Allaha yuhibbul muhsineen. Allah subhanahu indeed loves who those who are noble and virtuous. And obviously then this verse can be extrapolated in a general sense, not just about this act of jihad or the act of spending as well. Right, spend nobly. Generally speaking, in the Allah yuhibbul muhsinin. This is one of the seven, so this is verse number 195. This is one of the seven attributes where Allah subhanahu uses this word yuhibbu. So we're going to do them as you see now. In the Allah yuhibbu comes for seven things. One of them you're seeing today, muhsinin. Muhsinin. Okay, now after completing this discussion of the ahkam of military warfare. And if you just understood these three, four eyes, you've understood what the Qur'an al-Karim says about this. Now Allah Ta'ala is going to shift and talk about another hukam. So as you see now again, after talking about Bani Israel, it's all about ahkam to the Muslimin, is the hukam of hajj and umrah. وَاتِمُ الْحَجَّ وَالْأُمْرَةَ لِلَّهِ And you should complete the hajj and the umrah. Hajj is the seasonal pilgrimage and umrah is the non-seasonal pilgrimage. لِلَّهِ Only and only for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Not to be called haji sahab, not for any other reason. Only and only to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. All right. 
Very briefly, because all of you know about Hajj, but in case some of you, and especially some of our younger students, may not have had the opportunity to go, so I have to tell you a little bit so that you can understand some of the details that are coming in the following ayat. The first thing is that Hajj, it basically consists of five or six days. On the 8th of Zulhijjah, on day 8 of the month of Zulhijjah, all of the people who are making Hajj should arrive in a place called Mina. On the 9th of Zulhijjah, they will go from Mina, cross Musdalafah, and enter into Arafah, and spend the 9th of Zulhijjah in Arafah. Then at that night, between the 9th and 10th, they must reach Musdalafah, back towards Mina, must reach Musdalafah, and spend at least portion of the night there, and stay there after Fajr, and spend a portion of the time after Fajr there. And then on the 10th, they will go back to Mina, Right? And then in Mina, then there's this act of what we call the Rami, stoning the Jamarat, or stoning the stone pillars that are representing or emblems of shaitan. You see, Allah Ta'ala made Sha'airullah emblems of himself and his might and power on earth. He's also put emblems and Sha'air, if you will, of shaitan on this earth. Then a person will, if they must stay at least the 11th and 12th as well in Mina, where every day they will go for that Rami, and then it is optional for them whether they stay yet an extra day of the 13th or not. And then if they don't stay, then they go back to Makkah on the 12th. Staying an extra day is considered preferred and a sunnah, but it's not required. All right. Because there you're going to find references to these dates. So 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 5 days for sure. And 13th optional possible 6th day. All right. Okay. First, now, the, the ahkam and hajj are a little bit scattered in the sense that you would normally be taught them if we were teaching you the fiqh of hajj because they have to do with the revelation of different events that happen. First event that happened, and this now is coming in the sixth year, the different event now, sixth year after hijrah. Again, Sayyidina Rasulullah under the Treaty of Hubaybiyah had come, no, this is before the Treaty of Hubaybiyah. Sayyidina Rasulullah with Sahabi Ikram had gone to Makkah Makarmah to do hajj. And they were barred from entering. So, fa'in uhsirtu means you were barred, prevented, literally blockaded from entering Makkah Mukarramah. Where did this take place? It took place at Hudaybiyah. Hudaybiyah is about 10 miles away from Makkah Mukarramah. It means that they went all the way from Medina Munawar to Makkah Mukarramah, which according to Imam Shafi, for him, it took 16 days journey by camel. And if everybody didn't have a camel and some were going on foot and the camels were carrying the goods, it may have taken even longer. So let's say anywhere from two to four weeks this journey took. And ten miles away, ten miles close to Makkah Makarma at this place called Hudaybiyah, the Mushrikeen of Makkah sent their army and forcibly put up a blockade. And Allah subhanahu revealed to the Prophet that in this incident of six Hijri you should go back. You should go back. But the problem was that they had come in a state of ihram. So that's another thing about Hajj, that you enter a state of ihram. That state of Aram includes a particular way of clothing, so for men, two white sheets. But it's not just the clothing. That's the libas of the Aram. It's a complete state in which certain things have been made forbidden on you, like relations with your spouse, like cutting of the hair, etc., etc., etc. Now, normally, the only way that you can exit that state of Aram is when you've completed that Hajj or that Umrah. So the question rose that how are we going to, okay, if revelation has come that we should go back, but how are we going to exit this halat of Aram? Alright? So for that, Allah subhanahu wa then said, and this is a ruling if ever it should happen again. Right? Maybe you show up in Jeddah and they reject your visa. <laughs> for some reason, you were denied entry and you showed up in a state of ihram. 
So what are you going to do? So what you should do in such a case and what the Fatima Sahaba told you, فَمَسْتَيْسَرَ مِنَ الْحَدْيِ Okay, what does this mean? That whatever is easily convenient to you, Al-Hajj is that word that is used for the sacrificial animal. That one of the things that you do right before you exit Ihram on Hajj is that you offer an animal sacrifice. This is known as Dam al-Shukr. This is different from the Eid wa al-Qurbani. This is Hajj wa al-Qurbani you can take in Urdu. Known as Dam al-Shukr when it's uh, in Arabic. So Allah Ta'ala said, okay, you fast forward. You're not going to be able to do Tawaf and Sa'i and all of that and Mina and Muzdalafa and Arafat. You fast forward to the end and you just offer the animal sacrifice, whatever is easily conveyable to you. Okay? And do not do halak. So this is a sunnah for the men that they're supposed to shave their heads. Yes, it comes in hadith and this is the case where everybody follows hadith. <laughs> all the people who claim they only follow Quran, it comes in hadith, not in Quran. It comes in hadith that you can do kasr. Actually, it's going to come later in Quran that you can do kasr. That's a mistake. So it comes in Quran that you can actually trim your hair. Right? But here in this verse, Allah Ta'ala is just saying halak. That's why the Mufassirun have said that going bald, making yourself halak is skinhead, hmm? is more preferable than trimming every piece of your hair. Here, this is also an amal that is done. This is the last amal that is done and signifies the exiting of ihram for a man. So Allah SWT is saying, don't exit the ihram, don't shave your heads until that, and again now the word hajj is coming, so that sacrificial animal reaches the place in which you are going to offer it to Allah SWT in sacrifice. Alright? Now, let's say if you're it's going to come a bit later. What you're going to, if you're not able to do that, that's going to come later. Now, separate thing is if any of you are sick or you have some illness in your head, what does this mean? So, this is referring to an incident. There was a Sahaba Sayyidina Kaab ibn Ujra who had a lot of lice. And he asked the Prophet that I'm having such a large amount of lice and it's causing such pain for me that can I shave my head earlier? I will still be in ihram. I'm not shaving my head as a means of exiting ihram. I want to shave my head as a means of a cure for this lice. So the Prophet ﷺ then revealed this ayah in response to this need of one sahaba. This also shows you how much Allah loves sahaba ikram. This could have been done in hadith, right? One sahaba, one case of lice. But every now and then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala shows how much he loves sahaba kiram. Radiyallahu ta'ala anhum ajma'in. And he decided that that answer, the Prophet could have given it, Allah Ta'ala gave the answer himself. Right? And the re- another reason, one reason is love for Sahaba, another is to show us that if a person reaches, again, that level of duress in one particular aspect of ihram, then if they really, not the Urdu majboor, but the really real duress, right? If they're under real duress, then they can suspend that aspect of ihram and still remain in the state of ihram. Alright? Okay, but what are they going to have to do for that? So they can remain in ihram, they can continue in their hajj, but they're going to have to compensate. This is called a fidya, expiation, compensation. In Urdu you call it talafi. For fidyatum min siyamin, either they should fast, or sadakin, or they should give some charity, or nusuk. Nusuk means, again, an animal sacrifice they should offer, yet another an additional animal. 
for this suspending of this act of ihram. That's why you will find when you go on Hajj or Umrah, you will read in the books that there are certain jinayat or there are certain transgressions or violations of ihram that if you do them, you have to comp- you, you can still, your Umrah and Hajj will still be valid, but you will have to compensate for that by means of an animal sacrifice. All right. فَإِذَا amintum. Okay, now for those people, what does it mean that going back to the original story, that when you regain a state of aman, right? One was a state of ahsar, when you're being blockaded from entering. When you regain a state of peace and security and sanctity. Then that person who had also taken the benefit of umrah along with hajj. So there are different types of hajj. Now I can't teach you the entire fiqh of hajj. Very quickly, hajj ifrad, hajj timatu, hajj kiran. Hajj timatu and hajj kiran, these are just words for a person who when they make the journey of hajj, in that journey of hajj, they also perform an umrah prior to doing that hajj. If they do it with the same ihram, so they do word ihram and they make umrah and they don't exit ihram, and with that same ihram they do hajj, that's called kiram. And if they do go there in a state of ihram, perform umrah, then exit that state of ihram, then again enter a state of ihram and then do hajj, that is called tamattu. It's for these two types of Hajj, in which a person does Umrah as well, in which the animal sacrifice was mandatory. And Hajj Ifrad, if a person goes and just does Hajj, actually you don't have to give Dhamma Shukr, you don't have to sacrifice an animal for that. So Allah SWT is saying is for that person who combined, literally it means and took the benefit of an Umrah while he was there, along with the Hajj, right? So again, that whatever is easily convenient from him, he should offer as a sacrificial animal. And that person who does not, literally means does not find, find that convenience, find that animal, and is not able to do it. So what should that person do? They should fast three days in Hajj. So go back to the days, right? So different, what's, different ulama have different, different Preferences as to which of the three days they should fast of those days of Hajj that I mentioned to you. And some ulama prefer that you should fast them consecutively. Either way, they should fast three of those days of Hajj, and then wasabatin ida rajatum, and then you should fast seven more when you return to your homes, tilka ashratun kamila, and thus you will have ten complete days of fasting. Sometimes people use this as a muhawara in the Arab world, tilka ashratun kamila. Like if they're going for a journey and nine people say we're going to come and a tenth one comes, so they say tilka asratun kamila. That is okay. Because that is not using kalamullah that Allah directed at mushrikeen and directing it at Muslims. No. That's just using a statement that was not directed by Allah subhanahu against a particular group. And some people suggest that there is some significance to the number ten that having something in ten may mean that it reaches a certain level of sufficiency. And Arabic grammar may also suggest that, right? So that 10 means, you know, that when you have something at the level of 10, right? And even mathematics suggests that you need the extra digit. It's it's a very 10-based numbering system, right? But that's a very light, light, light type of preference. Okay? All right. ذَرَكَ لَمَنْ يُكُمْ أَحْلَهُ هَذِرِ الْمَسْجِدِ الْحَرَمِ this is for that person whose household is not present in Masjid al-Haram. What does it mean? The Ahl Makkah don't have to do this. So if you were a person who was Makkawi, you wouldn't have to do this. But for people who come from outside Makkah, have to offer this animal sacrifice. And you should fear Allah SWT and fear something that is felt in the heart. And know indeed deeply that Allah SWT is very intense when He calls a person to task. 
right? Adab and iqab, these are two words, normally both in English are probably mentioned as punishment, right? Adab is normally referring to the punishment of Jahannam. And iqab is referring to what in Urdu you would call pakr, in Arabic muakhada, calling a person to task, which may be in this world, may also be in the, day, in the grave, may be on the day of judgment, and may also refer to the akhirah. Okay, so Allah Ta'ala is indeed intense when He calls a person to task. Who? That person who didn't have taqwa. The rabbit is always with the taqwa. That person who didn't have taqwa may have to face the mu'akhidah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Al-Hajju Asharun Ma'lumat. Alright. Hajj itself now is known or predetermined series of months, and that is the month of Shawwal, the month of Zikada, and the first ten days of Zul-Hijjah. What does that mean? That when can you leave, when can you enter the state of Ihram? When can you make intention? Right? You, and sometimes people had to travel a year before to get to Makkah Mukarramah. But they could not ent- make the intention of entering the state of Ihram unless it's at least the month of Shawwal. So the earliest that you can enter the state of Ihram with Niyat of Hajj is the second of Shawwal. Alright? Some say the first of Shawwal after you've prayed Eid Salah. Once you've prayed Eid Salah, then even on the first of Shawwal you could do it. But after you've prayed the Eid Salah or after if it's a woman, after the time of Eid Salah has passed. Alright? So these are the known names. Now what does this mean now? We don't make it far. It means that that person who undertakes the obligation. I don't know how he translated it for you, but that person who undertakes the obligation in those months to do hajj, then there are three things Allah SWT says on that person. So this is a description of certain spiritual attributes of ihram. So it's not just the libas. So number one, when you have made the intention to do hajj, in these months and days of Hajj, and you have made, entered into Ihram, number one, Fala Rafatha. Rafatha can mean two things. Number one, it can mean profanity, obscenity, foul language. That's one meaning. Second meaning, it can mean affection and intimacy between husband and wife. In other words, not only are relations entirely prohibited, but even having affectionate and loving words, that is not allowed. And it's a husband and wife who go on hajj. When they're in the state of ihram, they're literally not supposed to look at one another or talk to one another lovingly, let alone do any physical act. Why is this, right? The reason is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is trying to assist us and give us a surat so the haqiqat will come. This is the feature of Islam. That Allah ta'ala gives us the surat, the zahir of something, an outward behavior to manifest so that an inward feeling can come inside of us. What is the inward feeling that we were supposed to get due to outwardly not showing any love and affection to our lawfully wedded spouse? That was that we were totally lost in the love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Hajj is a journey of ishq and love. And Allah ta'ala wants that this abd mu'min should be so drowning in love for me on this journey. And now they put ihram on, now they're like a majnoon. They're an ashik, they're ashik sadiq. You know Majnoon. Remember Majnoon and Layla, right? So you have to make Allah Ta'ala your Layla. Nay samjay. Right? So this person is so lost in the love of Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala that they're not even able to feel or manifest, display affection to their wife. And why should you be shocked at that? Today the men are so lost in their surfing that they don't notice their wife. Women tell me that my husband just surfs all weekend, doesn't give me any time. They're lost in their work. They're lost in so many things. So that's the second meaning of Rafa. Second, wala fusuqa, which means you should not commit any sin. A fancy word for this in English is iniquity. 
There should not be any iniquity. Right? There should not be any sin. No iniquity should happen. Now obviously this is true throughout. Right? It's not like you can sin outside the days of Hajj. But what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying is you've entered the state of Ihram, you should be especially careful. So when a person goes for Umrah on Hajj number one, they should never ever miss a prayer over there. They shouldn't be spending late nights in their hotel and miss Fajr in Makkah Mukarma. Allahu Akbar. Can you imagine that? Hmm? Or miss Fajr in Medina Munawra. So don't do any kada. Guard your gaze. I'm giving you two, three examples of sins that people fall into when they're there. Right? They don't guard their eyes. Because not every woman there is covering all the time. Right? And what the women should be covering and how they should cover in Hajj and Umrah will come later on in the Quran al when the rulings of hijab and niqab come. Number three, they should guard their tongue. People engage in backbiting, people engage in slander, people engage in idle conversation while they're at the these sacred places of Makkah, Mokarim, or even worse, Mina Muzdalifah. What people do sitting all day in their tents in Mina, Allah Akbar, that was supposed to be a place of ibadah, of dhikr, of dua, of tilawat, of istighfar, of durud. And many, many groups, guppy children, they're just shooting the breeze. Or even worse, you're in ihram, you're in the tent, you made it this far. You've come this close to the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and instead of making dua, you're comparing rates of different groups, you're getting upset that your group charged more than the other guy's group, or you're together complaining about your own group. Allah Akbar. Really, Pakistani groups get tamasha over them. I've had the opportunity to go on Hajj. Allah Akbar. Really, some people, they go, you know, it's amazing. So Allah Ta'ala wanted for us that we shouldn't, shouldn't have the spiritual diseases when we go there. And the third thing, wala jidal. Jidal means, and it's related to what I just ended on, no dispute, no argumentation, no contention. Right? And this is a very important thing. Why? Because this is the feeling Allah Ta'ala wants to give when you're in Hajj and Umrah, you're a complete slave. Like, can you imagine like when there was slavery, does a slave ever enter into an argument with anyone in front of the king? Let's say one of the king's knights shoves him. But the king is there. Does the slave engage in argument? No. He takes it anything. So Allah Ta'ala wants that the human being should be abdi mu'min. If when he arrives at the Hajj terminal, he has to wait four hours to get his visa stamped, so what? In early days, people took three months to get there. You got there on a four-hour journey, Lahore Jeddah non-stop. So what if you have to wait four hours to get your visa stamped? They are processing millions of hujaj. <laughs> it's going to take a bit more to do immigration. If somebody cuts you on that immigration line, we'll see what... On arrival, they break the spirit of Iran. Let him cut you. Allah Ta'ala is saying, no fighting, view yourself as nothing. You are here to be jostled in tawaf. You are here to be cut in line. You are here to be pushed off the bus. You are here to be the servant and slave and just go where the waves take you. You are nothing. You have no hisiyah. That you should argue and dispute and contend for your supposed stature and your rights. This is how a person should do Umrah and Hajj. Alright. And whatever you Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and whatsoever you do from good and virtue, Ya'lamhullah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows it. Allah ta'ala will see that when you bite your tongue and don't talk back to the person who cut you in line, Allah ta'ala will see it. He will give you something for it. Alright? Next ruling of Taqwa. Another very nice ayah, 197 to remember. do and make provisions for the journey. Secure for yourself and take provisions for the journey. What does it mean? Allah is saying, don't show up with no money. 
Don't count on the other hujaj to somehow finance you. Don't go begging in the streets of Makkah Makarama. And also leave provisions for those who have rights over you behind if you have to leave them. But what is the best of provisions? So Allah knows them as those people are always worried. They're thinking, how much money should I take out? Can I get a better rate for real here in Lahore? Will I get a better rate for real in Jeddah airport? Hmm? How much money do I have to leave behind? Even more than you're concerned, you have to do that. That's the first hukam. But even more than you're concerned about, about that, فَإِنَّ خَيْرَ الزَّادِ taqwa, The best provision for any journey, and for this journey of hajj, and for indeed this whole journey that we call life is taqwa. Store up on your taqwa. Take your taqwa with you. Practice your taqwa before you go. Prepare spiritually for the spiritual feelings of hajj. وَاتَّقُونِ And Allah Ta'ala says, Fear only me, ya ulul albab, O people who have sense. Again, I don't translate it as intellect. It means that ulul albab refers to those people who already have iman, who believe in Qur'an, who believe in Nabi alayhi salam. Allah Ta'ala is telling them that if you believe in me, fear me if you have sense. If you know me to be al-aziz, al-jabbar, al-mutakabbir, al-adheem, al-a'la, you should fear me. Sense, your own sense, your lub should dictate to you that you should fear me. Allahu Akbar. Next thing, next, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala now is mentioning uh, another ruling of Hajj. The Prophet was asked, that can we, because you know in those days people didn't go for the VVIP 12 day package, right? It took them months to get there and they would stay for many months and it would take them months to get back. So they said that can we engage in some trade, not in those days of Hajj, right? Not in those five to six days I mentioned to you, but otherwise in that journey, right? Can we engage in trade? And I think even maybe some ulama have even allowed trade even in those days of Hajj, right? So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that, that there is no sin, no harm on you if you seek the bounty from your Rabb in those days. All right. Next, Allah Ta'ala is giving another ruling of Hav that when you, and literally, afaztum means pour forth. That they probably said when you return, but it means return in droves. When you pour forth or return in droves, min Arafat. And Allah Ta'ala knew this, that you're going to be returning en masse, right? From Arafat. Where do you return to from Arafat? So first you go to Mazdalafa and then you return to Mina. So the return is viewed as returning to Mina. Fadkurullaha. Oh, sorry, when you return from Arafat, first, first, it's coming to Mudalafa. Fadkurullaha indal mash'arid haram. That you should remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala near this place called al mash'arid haram. Alright, what is this? That after Arafat you go to Muzdalifa. Near Muzdalifa there is a mountain that is sometimes known as Jabal al-Qadha and is also known as al mash'arid haram. And basically when Sayyidina Rasulullah would come back from Arafah and go to Muzdalafah and then do wukuf at Muzdalafah like I mentioned to you part of the night and also staying there after Fajr, then after Fajr ended, he would then go to this mountain which is part of Muzdalafah and he would engage in du'a and zikr over there. And then he would go to Mina. So if a person is able to go to that hill, I'm calling him able to go to that hill, that is fine. But otherwise, the whole area of Muzdalafa is sufficient for this hukam to remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. وَذْكُرُوهُ kama hadakum And remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala the way He has guided you to. Now this is fascinating, this is another sign in Qur'an that hadith exists because the hidayat of how to perform hajj aren't found in Qur'an. And Allah ta'ala is referring and invoking to those hidayat and Allah Ta'ala is attributing those hidayah to Him as Allah guided you. 
So it means that there is hidayah, there is wahi, there is guidance and revelation that is other than Qur'an sent to that same Nabi salam and that is called hadith and sunnah. And before this, before you received those hidayat, indeed you were amongst those who were lost and astray. The next step, which is what I was doing about going back to Mina. Thumma So pour out, return in droves from that place where the people return from in droves and masses. In other words, now from Arafat and Muzdalafah go back to Mina. Allah, And you should make istighfar of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Some of the Mufassirin have said that this refers to the return from Arafat to Muzdalafah. Others have said it returns from the Muzdalafah to Mina. Others have said it just refers to every stage of Hajj. But the fascinating thing here is Allah. Ya Allah, I just came back from Arafah. Arafah is the day of the greatest mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Arafah on Fard Hajj or Arafah on Ani Hajj is that day with the Prophet said that a person returns like a newborn baby. So what am I making istighfar for? This shows you the incredible level of istighfar in our deen. That we are always seeking forgiveness from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, even not just after sin, after hajj, after salah. The Prophet said that when you finish first salah, first you say, Allahu Akbar. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is greater than this ibadah that I just offered. Then you should say, Astaghfirullah three times, I seek the forgiveness from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, three times for the deficiencies and inadequacies in my salah. After Arafat, Allah ta'ala is saying, Wastaghfirullah. Allah Akbar. So then imagine how much istighfar we should make after sins. Gunaah ke baad kitna Allah ta'ala ki makfrit maanna chahiye. Jab arafat ke baad makfrit maanna Allah Akbar. Inna Allah ghafoorur raheem. Indeed, you will find, you will find that Allah who is commanding you to make istighfar to that Allah, you will find that that Allah spawned us all forgiving, all merciful. وَإِذَا okay. When you finish, complete and fulfill manasikukum, the rites of your hajj, now what you should do? After hajj, Allah, You should make the zikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The way you should remember your forefathers. What happened here is that now sometimes hajj, the rites of hajj are referred to basically this Arafat and Muzdalafah and when a person comes back to Mina. In pre-Islamic Arabia, their way of doing hajj, because I told you they twisted many, many things, and the Nabi Akhlisim restored the manasik, the rites of hajj, to what? Jibreel Islam taught Sayyidina Ibrahim Islam. One of the things they used to do is when they used to come back to Mina, they used to gather together and recite poetry in praise of their forefathers. And some of the Sahaba, obviously, were, all Sahaba were ex Something, former something, and some of them were former mushrikeen of Makkah of this kind who had actually done this before. So Allah Ta'ala was telling them that look, when you come back to Mina, now you should remember Allah Ta'ala wa ashadda dhikra. Oh, ashadda dhikra. Some commentators leave this as or, the English word or, oh, to means or, and other commentators said this means but. Sometimes O can come and you, if those of you are studying Darsh Nizami, if you do Surah Shasha, you will study that sometimes the huruf come, these particles and prepositions, sometimes one can take the meaning of the other. So some commentators read this, but rather more. So you should remember Allah Ta'ala at least as much and as fondly and with as much love as you used to remember your forefathers. Or you should remember Allah Ta'ala even more than that. Some have taken out from this ayah the permissibility of hamd, because the kaf is for abaakum. So the way they used to remember their forefathers was a dhikr, was a remembrance through poetry. So hamd refers to that poems, which is written in Arabic or do any language, that consists of praising Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in verse. 
Alright? Like the Matanavi of Malana Rum, Rahimullahu Ta'ala. And there are some people from, the, there are some from amongst humanity that when they, re, sorry, there are some people at that moment that the dua they make is all they ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala after hajj is for the dunya. So they expect that when they've done hajj, Allah will put barakah in their business, will give them career, Allah will do all of that. But that's all they want. So if that's all they want, وَمَالُهُ فِي الْآخِرَةِ مِنْ خَلَاقَ They will not have any part or share or portion in the Akhirah. Because they didn't make dua for that. But وَمِنْهُمْ But from amongst the people, there are some who say, رَبَّنَا أَتَنَا فِي الدُّنْيَا حَسَنَا وَفِي الْآخِرَةِ حَسَنَا وَقِنَا أَذَابَنَا They make three duas. Number one, they do make dua for the dunya. But remember, what do they make? They make dua for what in the dunya? Hasana. They make du'a for nobility, virtue, excellence, piety. They don't make du'a for unlawful things in the dunya. They want the hasanat of the dunya. And number two, they make du'a for the hasanat of the akhirah. That's everything to do with jannah, right? In other words, they make du'a for jannah and all of its bounties and blessings. And three, waqina adhab and they make du'a that Allah wants to save us from the punishment of hellfire. So it's showing us the adab of du'a. Adab of du'a. What that means is sometimes you may be caught up in a very tough dunyavi situation and you may turn to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in dua. At that moment, even though what, what is on your mind at that moment is your dunyavi parishani, but at that moment also make a dua for your akhirah and your deen. Adab of dua is that no dua should be empty of making dua of akhirah. Alright? Okay? So these people, أُولَٰئِكَ لَهُمْ نَسِيبٌ مِمَّا كَسَبُوا That they will have a portion and share based on what they earned and what they did. وَاللَّهُ سَرِيءُ الْحِسَابِ Indeed, Allah SWT is quick to account, swift to reckon. He will swiftly give them that portion of their good. But it's also generally, He will also swiftly call to account those who committed sin. مَذْكُرُ اللَّهُ فِي أَيَامٍ مَعْدُودَاتٍ And you should remember Allah SWT in these limited, specified days. So these were the days I was telling you back again about Mina. So 10, 11, and 12 of Mina. So 10 is viewed as the day of return. So then literally the Quran al-Kareem is going to do it. It's going to view 11 and 12 as two days. And the 13th of Zulhijjah as the extra day. فَمَنْ تَأَنْجِلَ فِي يَوْمَيْنِ That person who quickens, quickly ends after two days, that's fine. فَلَا إِثْمَ عَلَيْهِ There's no harm in that. وَمَنْ تَأَخَرَ That person who stays back for the extra day, فَلَا إِثْمَ عَلَيْهِ That there was no harm in that. So from the Qur'an, it's suggesting that they're equally permissible. The reason why the Prophet some stayed back and the jurists have said it's preferable because obviously it's one extra day of ibadah. They're equally permissible, equally sinless. But obviously one more day in Mina is worth more than one day outside of ending Hajj, right? One more extra day of Hajj, you can look at it like that. Liman taqa And that's why Allah SWT says for that person who has taqwa. So it shows that more taqwa lies in spending that extra day. And that you should have fear for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And you should always know and know well and deeply that you are going all to be gathered in front of Him. What I'm going to do now, because some we have received some feedback from some people that they find it a bit difficult to follow the ayah numbers and the translation. So... From now on, I'm going to shift modes. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to do groups of ayahs with you. I will first read the translation to you, the one you have on your screen. And then I will comment on it in my own style. All right? So hopefully we may also be able to go a bit faster. And certainly some of the women actually uh, have said that they would find this way to be easier. So the group now I'm going to do, I'm going to do the translation is from 
uh, verses 204 to 210. Verses number 204 and 210. I may still, well, okay, I'll, I reserve the right to still change some of the words from your translation if I see the need. All right? And from amongst the people, there is that person whose speech in this life brings you to a state of wonderment or attracts you to him. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is witness on what is in that person's spiritual heart. And indeed, Allah uh, indeed that person whose speech is impressing you is extremely quarrelsome. Okay, now what is going on here? This is referring to one of the munafiqun. His name was Akhnas. And here, this munafiq was known for his eloquence. And so he would so eloquently and so brilliantly, right, put these doubts of hypocrisy into people. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying is, don't be swayed by the speech of the hypocrites. Again, it's a mistake. Some scholars use this verse that again Allah is using on even worse than munafiqin. For, I wouldn't say scholars rather, some Muslim speakers use this word against scholars so they say that, oh, you know, you don't listen to him and don't, don't be beguiled by his accent. Hmm? Don't be impressed by his words. He's a Malvi. Malvi Malvi or sorry Malvi Karame. About Samajan, right? So no, you cannot use the words Allah Ta'ala uses on Munafiqeen for a fellow Muslim. You can make an academic critique, no problem, right? And everyone is willing to listen to that. But slandering, character assassination, and using the words of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and you putting them in your own tongue, this is a very arrogant thing if nothing else to do. It's a jura, right? It's a, somebody has a lot of boldness to be able to do this. Okay? Alright. Uh, so, Part, not only his eloquence, but when he used to go out in front of the people, he used to also swear. He used to take customs on what he used to say. He used to take custom for taqi to make people even more convinced. Alright. Okay. Next verse. When, once he turns back, he moves about in the land, trying to spread disorder in it, and to destroy the tillage and the stock, and Allah subhanahu does not like disorder. Now what happened here, once actually he apparently set fire to the entire farm, you can consider grazing or pasture of the goats, or some type of animal, I can't remember 100%, of one of the Sahaba Ikram. So Allah subhanahu is describing him. And you would think again, you would think that I'm caught. Allah ta'ala is revealing revelation. And Allah Ta'ala here is still not mentioning his name. The Mufassam Mufassirun mentioned that here Allah Ta'ala is being merciful towards him as well. That I could have outed you by name. But instead I'm going to mention what you did. Even he is getting a chance to make tawbah. Even him Allah Ta'ala is trying to show his mercy. But what happens? He doesn't take it. So when it was said to him, after it was discovered that, because the verses were enough, they figured out who he was. Even Allah didn't take it by name. So it was said to him that fear Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala. He was still tempted by what? He was tempted to continue to commit sin. Alright, now here you have here that he was tempted by arrogance. He was tempted by the promise of status and stature. This is what it is. He wanted to have a status and stature and fame. You see the Arabic word here is? Izza. Right? That made him go into sin. So after that, after Allah Ta'ala concealed his name and Sahaba invited him again and he still did sin, then what does Allah Subhanahu say in Quran? Then Jahannam is sufficient for him. And indeed, Jahannam is the worst abode to dwell in forever. Alright. And then from amongst human beings, there's another one who sells his very soul to seek the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
to seek the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and Allah ta'ala is very kind to his servants. So what does this mean? It means that they, it, it, I, wouldn't, I, I wouldn't have said sell very soul, but they sell the very desires of their soul that go against the wish of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They do that seeking the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They sell the pleasures of their nafs. They're willing to trade and give up the pleasures of their nafs, seeking the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. On such a person, Wallahu ra'ufun bil ibad, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is extremely compassionate bil ibad, with those of his submitting servants who are so willing to give up the pleasures of their nafs for him. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Ya ayyuhalladina amanu tkulu fisilmi kafa, that all you who believe you should enter into the deen of Islam utterly and completely in every single sense. And you should not follow into the footsteps of shaitan. Indeed, he is an open and manifest enemy to you. And if you slip, After the clear and manifest signs of guidance has come to you, Know that Allah SWT is almighty, and that Allah SWT is all wise. They are looking for nothing to accept the truth, but that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala comes upon them in canopies of cloud with angels, and the matter is closed to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, so all matters be returned. This goes back to that issue of Bani Israel that we told that they said that we won't believe until we see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And they're not going to believe until Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala manifests himself to them as if some being, you know, and some of us have that Christian concept of God is in the heavens and the clouds and the angels, right? So they were thinking of a similar such thing. So the sponsor is saying, that's not going to happen. But in us, Allah is not going to d- appear in front of them, but them. But them. الْأُمُورِ But all matters will be returned to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Alright. So this is the first group I was doing for you. Two, here I pretty much did it both ways for you. 204 and 210. I will mention one interesting hadith that Sayyidina Rasulullah mentioned that towards the end of time there will be some people who seek the dunya along with, through, by means of their deen. They will use deen as a means to acquire the dunya. So what will they do? They will dress in the dress of the people of deen. And they will try to act like the people of deen. But the way the Prophet describes that their qalb, their spiritual hearts, will be like the hearts of wolves. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will tell them, that, will address them, that are you fooled? By the mercy and opportunity I gave you, I gave you tawfiq to take the outward appearance of deen. But don't you think I know what you're doing inside? So then Allah Ta'ala will swear to them that I will send down disasters from among their own people. To which community, to, the, to, to which people who turn decent people into confusion, who make good people go astray. And so unfortunately you have that, this is what in English we call charlatans, right? People who fakely take on the name of deen for some sake of dunya begin. And it's not always money, always remember that. It's not always money. Sometimes a person is doing it for fame. Sometimes a person is doing it because they want to be a TV personality. Sometimes a person is doing it because they want to be a celebrity. It's not always just for money. That's also dunya. Alright? But they then end up misleading people. Alright. There we have to skip all this. Next group of eyes that I'm going to do with you is from 211. 211 
Okay. First, Allah SWT says here that ask the Bani Israel that how many clear signs have been sent to you. And think that that person who changes the bounty of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala after that bounty has come to them, فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ شَدِيدُ الْإِقَابِ Again, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when He calls to task, He is extremely severe in doing so. So here, bounty and blessing means, number one, the kitab or the book, the revelation scripture that was sent to them. And number two, what it means is that fazilat, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that I chose you and favored you, right? But you abuse that favor. Another meaning can be anbiya, that all these anbiya were sent to them. And as we did earlier, that they killed many, 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 many anbiya. All right. Now Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, زُيِّنَ لِلَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا الْحَيَاةُ الدُّنْيَا That the dunya, this life of this world, al-hayatul dunya, the life of the world, is made beautiful for those who disbelieve. They view it with beauty. Zenith is adornment. It attracts them. The life of the world attracts the person who doesn't have iman. Obviously, because for the person who doesn't have iman and akhir, then this world is the be-all and end-all of everything. And so then they want to make this world as attractive for them as possible. The person who is a mu'min and who believes in the akhirah, for them they want to make their akhirah as attractive as possible. That's what they're worried about. Alright. Okay. وَيَسْخَرُونَ مِنَ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا Here says, and they laugh, they laugh, they mock and jest. They mock and jest at those people who believe. And you see this especially in the atheists of today. Right? This is a description that really fits the atheist type of kufr. And they're the ones who obviously only believe in the empirical world that they see in front of them. And they mock and just people who believe in akhirah. Alright? But those who have taqwa, وَالَّذِينَ تَقَوْ فَوْقَهُمْ يَوْمِ الْقِيَامَةِ But those who have taqwa, who fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, who love Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, will be at a higher level than the unbelievers on the Day of Judgment. وَلَهُ يَرْزُكُ مَنْ يَشَاءُ بِغَيْرِ حِسَابٍ And indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives His provision to whomsoever He wills. Now what does this mean? Right? Now many times when this verse is taken separately, it means that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will send risk in terms of monetary provision and nourishment and sustenance to whomsoever He wills. Yes. Certainly it means that. But what it also means is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on the day of judgment, on the day of judgment, is going to give the provisions of akhirah to whomsoever he wants. But he's explained in Quran, who is he going to want to give it to? Those are the mu'mini. And he's going to give it to them بِغَيْرِ hisab in a way that they cannot imagine at all. So it does refer, it can also refer to risk in this world, but it's also referring to risk in the Next ayah, that all of humanity, indeed once upon a time all of humanity was a single ummah. This is referring to that time from Sayyidina Adam salam up to Sayyidina Nuh salam. At that point all of humanity and the human civilization was much smaller in number. We're all one civilization united under the deen of Sayyidina Adam salam had brought. Prior to the coming of Sayyidina Nuh is when humanity split up in schisms and divisions and started deviating from deen. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent the second prophet Sayyidina Nuh Now then this becomes the historical philosophy of why prophets are sent. Whenever the human community splits up and differs and disagrees over the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then Allah ta'ala sends another prophet to them as a hujjah to establish the deen once again. Now you may think then, well, 
after the Sayyidina Rasulullah has come, still people have deferred and disagreed with one another. But what Nabi Akram left behind, which was the Quran and Sunnah, is a sufficient hujjah. You don't need another Nabi. The Quran and Sunnah, that's the special feature of deen of Islam. That other prophets left behind sometimes scripture, certainly prophetic teachings. Every prophet had hadith, not every prophet had kitab. But the people who came after the tahrif, they changed and adulterated that. Quran and Sunnah cannot be adulterated. And combined, they establish a sufficient hujjah. That is why Nabi Karim Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is Khatam and Nabiyin. He is the absolute last and final prophet and messenger in every single sense. But here, there was once upon a time that all of humanity was one ummah. And then after that, when they split, فَبَعَثَ اللَّهُ النَّبِيِّينَ مُبَشِّرِينَ وَمُنذِرِينَ Then Allah SWT sent a lot of prophets to bring glad tidings and who would put the fear of Allah SWT and the fear of Jahannam into their heart. Okay? Right. وَأَنزَلَ مَعَهُمْ And Allah Taala sent with those prophets الْكِتَابَ بِالْحَقِّ Now here, kitab is singular. So this may refer to, if you will, a master body of revelation, which is singular, because all wahi is a sifat of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is a bit of a difficult thing to understand, just like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's attributes, His speech, His kalam is also His attribute. And His kalam in entirety, Qur'an and all the wahi sent on previous anbiya, taken as a totality can represent a singular entity and can be referred to as in the single of Al-Kitab. So Allah Ta'ala sent with the Anbiya that wahi, that kitab bilhaq, with absolute truth, layahkuma, so that those Anbiya could decide between the people who were disagreeing with one another about what they disagreed with. So baghyam means stubborn, or they have, okay, he has mentioned it here as perhaps as envy. So baghyam means stubborn, or envy, or rebellion, or disputing. Right, so but it was all indeed what happened. Why would you need a second Nabi? Now Allah Ta'ala is mentioning a second phase of human ministry. And then once parts of the, the kitab, the revelation is sent, those who are given the book start disputing and disagreeing with one another. So but it was no, uh, no none other other than those to whom the kitab was revealed that were led by baghawa, enmity, envy, however you want to put against each other, that they disputed about it and after it, even after the bayanat, the clear signs had come to them. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then the next stage what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala do, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, فَهَدَ اللَّهُ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا So what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala always did, He always sent His hidayah on people who had true iman in Him. And they would be able to navigate through these disagreements and these divergent opinions. Okay? And they, and how did He guide them? To what? لِمَخْتَلَفُوا فِيهِ مِنَ الْحَقِّ بِإِذْنِهِ He guided them to the truth from amongst the things they differed بِإِذْنِهِ Literally due to His permission, but here you can read due to His decree and His wish and command. وَاللَّهُ يَهْدِي مَنْ يَشَاءُ And Allah SWT guides whomsoever He, so he wills إِلَى سِرَاتٍ مُسْتَقِيمٍ To the straight path. Here again you see the Alif Lam is not on Sirat and Alif Lam is not on Mustaqim. Because it's not the specific as-sirat al-mustaqim that is for the, this ummat, mentioned in Surah Fatiha. This is referring to straight path of all of the anbiya from Sayyidina Adam alayhi up till the end of time. Really that's the power of the Arabic language. When the alif lam is there and it's not there, it can create oceans of meaning. Not difference, but it can add layers and layers of meaning or sometimes subtract them. Alright, so next verse. Alright. 
Do you think that you are going to enter into Jannah? And it will not come to you. The same things, the same halat, the same situations that came to those who passed me come looking before you. No. It's going to come to you. The same afflictions that came to them. What is that? Ba'sa'u, hardship, dhara'u, difficulty. Wazulzulu, and they were shaken up. They were shaken up. Hatta yakulu rasul. So much so that the rasul said, Walladina amanu ma'ahu. And those who believed along with him, what would they say? Mata nasrullah. That one will the help of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala come. Now this is not because they doubted Allah ta'ala's help would come. This was out of desperation. So it means that Allah Ta'ala is showing in Qur'an that even Anbiya and even their Sahaba have been afflicted with such intense hardship that they would reach such a level of difficulty that they would reach utter desperation and only and only the help of Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala would be able to take them out and they would be waiting for that help. So if Anbiya and Sahaba of the past can reach levels of such levels of difficulty then what do we as Mu'mineen think? It's very important because many times people don't want to have a tough time or they immediately become, have suizan, badguman of Allah Why does Allah do this to me? Why is Allah putting me in this state? And sometimes, some, especially when young people become religious, they think sometimes when a shaitan tricks them is that you are now following the yes. You're praying salah, yes. You're making dua, yes. You're following sunnah, yes. Still hardship is going to come on you. So when hardship, they're stunned. Like, ya what's going on? Right? No, that's life. <laughs> you're still on earth. You're still on life. You're still going to have ibtilan, ibtihan. It's going to continue. Sometimes it will increase. Sometimes it will decrease. Even coming on deen won't even stop to increase. It's going to come and increase and decrease no matter how religious you get. Because look, that's what happened to Sahaba. That's what happened to the Anbiya of the past. That's what Allah SWT is trying to explain to us. Alright. Allah inna nasrullahi kareem. But no... That when you reach that level of absolute need and want and dependency and desperation, and you turn absolutely to the absolute mother than Nusrat of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then you will find it qareeb, you will find it intimately near and swift to come to you. Okay, now comes yet another uh, thing over here. Now the, the, the occasion of this revelation is that Sayyidina Amr ibn Janjur was a wealthy sahaba. And Amr ibn Jamu, Amr, Amr, Amr ibn Jamu radiallahu ta'ala was a wealthy sahabi and he asked Sayyidina Rasulullah how should I spend my money? How, I, so this, this ayah came before, not to spend fi sabilullah. So how should I give, to whom should I give? So yes, alunaka, they ask you my beloved messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, madha yunfikun, that how and what manner should they spend their money? Qul, say to them, my beloved Messenger Sassam, that whatever you spend from khair, khair here means your wealth, property, possessions, your money. So here, mal, having property and money, possessions, isn't viewed as evil in Islam. It's being referred to as khair by Allah Ta'ala in Quran, but it is a khair for you when you want to share, if you have a lot of it, it's, it's when you have a lot of it, when you're rich, those riches are here for you when your feeling is that you should give sadaqah from those riches, peace be Allah. Then make it clear what I'm saying is not just the sadaqah that you give will be khair, all the riches that still stay with you will also become khair. That money will be khair for you. When you wish to give part of it in sadaqah, when you have the same emotional feeling that Sayyidina Abr ibn Jamuh had.
So who is it that we're going, who is it that Allah SWT is going to command us to give that khair to? So number one, فَلِلْ walidain. That means if anybody's parents need financial support, that is the number one khair that a person can do. And many of us may not have parents who need financial support. Many of us may have, some of us may have parents who financially support us. But if we're in that position, we should view that position as an incredible opportunity of khair to support our parents. Qur'anul Kareem. Number one, so again, I told you, lots of things come for parents. Not obedience, but ikram, izzat, ihtiram, spending on them, khidmat of them in every way possible, with wealth, with body, with heart, with mind. All right. Uh, where do we go? Right. Next, wal akrabin and your close relatives. Literally, it means those who actually, wal akrabin literally means those who are closer to you, which means family and relatives. Zawil qurba, sometimes it is also used, right? This is also an ishara by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Qur'an, that you're supposed to keep your family and relatives close to you, unlike what some people do, right? Now being close is something of the heart, right? Being close doesn't necessarily mean you may always be meeting them or talking to them, but close to the heart. When do you tell that? That whenever is the occasion that you meet them, your heart feels a love for them and their heart feels a love for you. As long as you have that, you're, they are akrabeen for you and you are akrabeen for them. That your face is smiling and your heart is smiling when you see them and when you meet them and you interact with them. Right? Because we live in a day and age when people are busy, people live in all four corners of the world. Right? But they have to be kareeb to your heart. So that's the second. If anybody in your family and relatives needs money. But yatama, third, the orphans. Orphans. Alright, that those who don't have family, so give to your family, and then those who don't have family to give to them, who's going to take care of them? So you be their family. Right? Well, masakin and masakin means the needy and poor. Right? The needy and the poor, this again we did this last time, the truly needy and poor, who are deserving of charity, wabin sabil and the traveler. Now this doesn't mean any traveler by the way. Right? You go to London for three days and then you go to the masjid and say, give me some zakat and sadqah and say, why? I'm a traveler even though I came first class. SNA. Wabn al means that traveler who for some reason was not able to plan properly or due to unforeseen circumstances had to extend their stay and need some financial support or maybe somebody stole their wallet or something like that. That's what it means. <laughs> All right? Okay. And every single thing that you do from good and virtue, indeed Allah subhanahu wa is extremely knowing of that. So Allah says the same thing in different ways. He keeps repeating it. Next. Okay, next now ruling of Qur'an al-Kareem. Alright, so now we're going to do this next group now. Here I'm sort of violating the groups, but 216 onwards. Alright. Kutiba alaykumul kitab. Killing has been enjoined upon you. Oh, sorry, fighting. Kital, this is with an alif. Fighting has been made enjoyed upon you. That's already been explained when and in which cases and how it's been enjoined, right? Sometimes people pluck this out and they think this is some, you know, you're just supposed to be fighting all the time. That's not what it means, right? Just like today, if a general tells the soldier that you, you come here to fight, boy, it doesn't mean that he should go now in, in a civilian uniform and start fighting day and night in Idaho. He also understands it means that in certain, according to the rules of military engagement, right? For that I'm being prepared to fight. It's the same thing in Quran. Same thing in Quran. Okay? Alright. And this is something that you don't like. 
And that's what Allah is saying, that if you're a true mu'min, you can understand this in two ways. I mean, to be fair, you can understand this in two ways. One way is that Allah is addressing somebody who's weak in terms of cowardice. Who is too weak in terms of cowardice to fight against the aggressor and the oppressor, right? Second way, it may also mean that if you are a true mu'min, you are now a person of peace. So this is not going to be something you enjoy doing. And really that's what every soldier is supposed to be. They're supposed to be trained actually in peace because all fighting should only be limited to the extent to bring about peace. And when soldiers don't have that tirbiyah, then they engage in violations. They kill civilians. Like you know when I was in England, I heard about this. There's some case that three, four of your rangers shot some guy in some park. And apparently it's on video. And the whole country has seen the video. Allahu Akbar. I don't know. Allahu Allah. If this is the case. But that means that this is Allah. I don't know. If this, if this was the case, that means these soldiers don't have tirbiyah. Right? They enjoy killing. It's not supposed to be like that. It's not supposed to be like They enjoy fighting. It's not supposed to be like that. It's not supposed to be like that. Okay? Now, Allah Ta'ala is saying that it may happen that sometimes you dislike something, but it actually has some khair in it for you. It has some khair, or it is khair for you. And what was the khair, remember? Fitna is ashad min al-qatl. So the khair in this fighting is only and only when it removes fitna. Right? Because fitna was even worse than qatl. Okay? Now Allah is mentioning a jinn. This is also a very important ayah that you know, everybody should know. That sometimes you may love something. You may love something, but who has on it is evil for you. So Allah is training us that look, don't follow your heart, follow my kalam. Until unless your heart is completely aligned with my kalam, don't follow your, just your feelings, don't be emotional, you should follow my kalam. Wallahu ya'lamu wa antum la ta'lamun. And Allah Ta'ala is knowing and you don't know. Next thing, yes, Alunaka on a shahn al haram. So the next question is the Prophet Prophet, they're going to ask you. Uh, okay, what is the shahn and nuzul of this? This is an issue. Let's say now Rasulullah once, after Okay. The month before uh Rajab. The month before Yes, the month before Rajab, that is called Jumadai Ukhra. Right? There's the first Jumadai Ula, and then there's Jumadai Ukhra. Now remember, Rajab was one of the sacred months. Now in Islam, the months are based on lunar moon sighting. So sometimes you don't know for sure did somebody see the moon on this night and is tomorrow the first of Rajab. Or on the 29th, after the 29th of Jumadai Ukhra, you don't know did somebody see the moon and tomorrow is the first of Rajab, or the moon was not seen and tomorrow is the 30th of Jumadai Ukhra. And in terms of this command, right, of the sacredness of the months in which you could not fight to repel aggression or remove fitna, it would make a difference. Because if it was the first of Rajab, then you should have respected that sacredness and not have fought to repel aggression and eliminate fitna. But if it was the 30th of Jumadah, you could have. So what happens is that once Sahabi Kram were engaged in this type of kital that has been described now in the previous verses, repelling aggression with like aggression with the intention to eliminate fitna, and that fighting was taking place on the end of Jumadah Ukhra. And then after the 29th, they thought that the moon hadn't been seen, or maybe they didn't see the moon, or they hadn't heard about the moon flooding. So the next day they continued repelling the aggressors, because they thought it was 30th Jumadah Ukhra. But actually the moon had been seen, and it was first Rajab. 
And so when the Muslims fought on that day, they were in violation of that rule, that not to fight in the inviolable sacred months. And the unbelievers raised this point, that you have violated this, they raised it to the Prophet So then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala responds to this in Qur'an al-Kareem. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala responds to this in Qur'an al-Kareem. So that is what is going on over here uh, in this next sequence of ayat. Okay, yes, Anunaka and Shaykh al Haram. So they're asking you about the sacred months. So in this case, it meant Rajab, Kital and Fi. And what is the rule of fighting aggressors in that month, right? And yes, yes, you're not supposed to do that, right? Kul, Kital and Fihi Kabir. That all my beloved reply to them that fighting in that sacred month is Kabir, is an enormously terrible thing to do, is an enormously wrong thing to do. It's kabir. It's not, it's not a violation that will be taken lightly. وَسَدُّنْ أَنْ سَبِيلِ However, stopping people from the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And you can imagine here, one of these elements is stopping people from doing Umrah and Hajj. وَكُفْرٌ bihi And disbelieving and denying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Alright? وَالْمَسْجِدِ haram. And Masjid al-Haram. So stopping people from the path of Allah, stopping people from Masjid al-Haram, and disobeying it, disbelieving in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this is an Arabic grammar of Masjid al-Haram is ma'tuf on sabilillah. Right? Wasaddun an sabilillah, wasaddun an Masjid al-Haram, wa kufrun bihi. Okay, these three things, sorry, wa ikhraju ahlihi minhu, and the fourth thing is to remove people from their homes and their hometowns, in the sense that you kicked us out from Makkah Makarramah and made us go to Medina Manora. You made such a situation first for two years, you put an economic sanction and boycott on us, and then you made it even so difficult that we had to go to Medina Manora. So these type of acts, akbaru in the law. These are even, so that is kabir, but this is akbar. This is even greater a violation in the eyes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So in other words, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala took the side of who? Sahaba. Wasn't the Prophet wasn't there in this jihad? Whose side did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala take? Sahaba ikram radhiallahu And it wasn't just seven of them who were there. It wasn't just seven of the Sahaba who were there. Sahaba ikram. Right? Okay. And again, again, Allah Ta'ala says the same thing, وَالْفِتْنَةُ أَكْبَرُ مِنَ الْقَتْلِ The fitna that you were causing is worse than this act of fight, killing in response to your fighting. Okay? Alright. Um, okay. وَلَا يَزَالُونَ يُقَاتِلُونَكُمْ Don't think that they, they're not going to stop fighting you. Now Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala is telling the Muslims, that they're not going to desist. They will not desist from fighting you. Hatta yuruddukum an dinikum. They will not stop until they feel that they've returned you from your deen. So this is referring to mushrikeen in Mecca. Jews and Christians, the early ayah, they're not trying to get you to leave your deen. They just want you to leave your millat. Mushrikeen of Mecca, they want you to leave the deen of Islam itself. Alright? They won't stop fighting until you turn from the deen. If ever they were to, if, could, if they could ever be able to do so. If they could ever be able to do so. Alright. Now, what is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saying next? That if you do, وَمَنْ and any such person, مَنْ يَرْتَدِدْ Any such person who changes their deen, مِنْكُمْ from amongst you, in other words, who's already accepted Islam and deen, 
فَيُمُتْ And then dies on that unbelief, وَهُوَ kafir In such a state that he's an unbeliever, فَأُولَٰئِكَ habitat أَعْمَالُهُمْ Then all of their actions will go to waste with dunya in this world, وَالْآخِرَ In the next life. Alright. This is a very... Uh, let me finish. فَأُولَٰئِكَ أَصْحَابُ النَّارِ And they will be the companions of hellfire, هُمْ فِيهَا خَالَدُونَ And they will live therein forever. Okay, this is an issue of apostasy. Alright, now I want you to separate out apostasy and blasphemy. These are two separate things. When later it comes a chance and opportunity to talk about blasphemy, I will do that. Apostasy means that that person who is a Muslim, not by birth, by belief and conviction. I want to be clear, if there is a kid who was born to a Muslim family, was always secular and becomes atheist when he goes to study at Berkeley, just said that, <laughs> coincidence, right? He's atheist when he studies at Chicago, right? Okay? If he was never on, firmly on the deen of Islam, he won't be viewed as a murtad. Murtad is that person who has firm belief and conviction in the totality of Islam. And then after that, you see, because Allah Ta'ala used the word deen, that you were on deen and then you left it for unbelief, and you remained on that unbelief such that death overcame you in a state of unbelief. Alright. So what is Allah SWT saying? Allah SWT is mentioning a punishment in the Akhirah for such a person that all, with even the first few years they were Muslim, that will be nothing. That's all finished. They won't have any of that. That's null and void when they meet Allah SWT in Akhirah. In terms of dunya, what did it mean? So it meant that in Muslims, there's a certain rights of inheritance. But once you're a non-Muslim, you no longer have those rights of inheritance because those rights of inheritance are granted by Qur'an and you're an unbeliever, you unbelieve in the Qur'an that gives it to you so you won't enjoy those rights. Okay. What is the punishment for apostasy in Islam? In the time of Sayyidina Rasulullah Wasallam, there's absolutely no doubt whatsoever that the punishment for apostasy was capital punishment. Alright. How has this been understood? Number one is that even today, even today, treason is punishable by death. In America, capital punishment is something that the federal government has left at the discretions of the individual 50 states. There are still some states of those 50 states right now in 2011 that in their books of law, the punishment for treason in the state of X, right, is death. What is treason? Treason means to, le- to be a citizen of a country, and then to renege on that citizenship. That's what it means, right? So the nation state is so holy to some of them, it's not all 50 states, the nation state is so holy to some of them, that if somebody is a citizen, and then they renege on that citizenship, they're worthy of being put to death. So you can think of apostasy like a spiritual treason, that for the deen of Islam, deen is more important than nation state. And to be firmly established on the deen and enjoying all the privileges and rights of that deen and then to renege on that deen is like a spiritual treason and confirmed in the time of the false Islam it was viewed as punishable by death. There's a second reason. That first reason would apply for all times, right? There's a second reason which is specific only to the time of the false Islam and maybe also the time of the Saba. And that was munafiqin. And in order to deter people... Right? I told you all criminal laws about deterrence. In order to deter people from being a munafiq, they were told that, look, you're going to pretend to be Muslim, and then maybe later on say, I'm not Muslim. It won't be that easy. You won't get away scot-free. 
if you claim to be on deen and then later you say you're not on deen, you will be treated according to your outward actions because law can't look into a person's heart, right? And then you will be treated as apostate, therefore you will be killed. So capital punishment, second reason, but it was a deterrence. To, it was to less embolden people to become munafiqeen. That reason doesn't exist after the time of the Prophet and Sahaba Ikram. The vast majority of Islamic scholars have view that the punishment for apostasy is death. There is a small minority who has said that the punishment of apostasy was death necessarily at the time of the Prophet and now the punishment of apostasy can be death, but can be something else at the discretion of the emir or ruler or qazi or judge in an Islamic state and an Islamic court. So what does that mean? That means to have that discretionary power, you have to have the Islamic state and Islamic court. If you don't have the Islamic state and Islamic court, you won't have that discretionary power, and you'll have to go back to the default punishment of death. Right? Third question about Qadianis. And they're going to be coming later. I'm going to discuss them when they're proper time. But, but let's see when, when there are certain verses of Quran claim that they misrepresent because we haven't come to one of those yet. Right? But a person who is born a Qadiyani is not a Murtad. This is a misperception and we have to be honest. I can see. Yes. We have to be accurate in bayan of Sharia. A person who is born a Qadiyani is not an apostate. He's a Qadiyani. Apostate is that person who was firmly established and believed and was upon entire deen which means, meaning the Prophet was the last and final Prophet and Messenger, and then switched to something else. Right? Okay. A person who converted to Qadianism, whether at the time of Mirza Ghulam Qadiani or today, they could fall under the ruling, they would definitely fall under the ruling of an apostate. Alright? How should we treat Qadianis? Alright. If it wasn't for one thing, one issue, we would treat Qadianis like we treat any other non-Muslim. Deen of Islam does not teach that people in Pakistan should go kill Christians, go kill Hindus, go bomb churches. It doesn't teach us that we should go bomb the places of worship of Qadianis. And they could actually have all of the rights of all non-Muslims, people who are born Qadianis, right? People who are born and raised Qadianis would have all the rights of all non-Muslims if it wasn't for one thing. And that one thing causes a problem in the whole system. And that one thing is they call themselves Muslim. That is not acceptable to us. For example, I'm a non-Christian. I don't think if a Christian calls me a non-Christian, I don't think there's anything wrong in that. I won't say it's a violation of my human rights. I'm a non-Jew. I'm a non-Buddhist. I'm a non-Hindu. Alhamdulillah, 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 may Allah Ta'ala preserve me on that. The Qadiani has to accept that they are non-Muslim. If they accept that, we will treat them with all of the rights and respect that Allah Ta'ala and Nabi Qasim taught us to treat every other non-Muslim. But if they say we are Muslim, that is a problem. Still, that doesn't mean you can kill them, don't get me wrong. Them saying that we are Muslim does not mean that they will be killed. You still cannot kill them. But it means that they will not be given those rights that otherwise non-Muslims are given. And their freedom to worship and preach will be limited. 
because they are trying to worship and preach as a form of deception in the guise of Islam, which they are not. Why they are not Muslim, I would rather do in detail when those verses come that establish that. But simply I will tell you that why am I a non-Christian? Because I don't believe Isa was the last prophet. Why am I a non-Jew? Because I don't believe that Musa was the last prophet. So why are they non-Muslim? Because they don't believe Sayyidina Rasulullah is the last prophet. Why does a Jew call a Christian a non-Jew? According to Jews, Christians are non-believers. Why? Because they don't believe that Sayyidina Musa is the last prophet. So this is a common thing. This is a common thing. And I'm sure in America, now if we call ourselves Muslims, they don't have a problem with us. If we said we are Christianity, and instead of masjid we're going to call ourselves a church, I'm sure the Christians would raise a hue and cry. So all we say to people who are born and raised Qadiani, says you are what you are, you've chosen to believe in another prophet. We will try to invite you back to the deen of Islam with love. We will try to convince you that that person is not a prophet. But you are now a new religion. You have invented a new religion called Qadianism. And I will tell you a fact that I've read with my own eyes. My own eyes I've read. The writing of Mirza Ghulam Qadiani. And he writes that anybody who does not accept me as a prophet is an unbeliever. So in their eyes, every non-Qadiani is an unbeliever. So nobody, none of the human rights organizations are worried about that. This is an issue of theology. So, in, and sure, they believe that about us. Fine. And we believe about them that they are non-believers. There's absolutely no doubt whatsoever that anybody who believes in any type of prophet after the Prophet is an unbeliever. Just like anybody who believes in any prophet after Isa is a non-Christian. Just like anybody who believes in any kind of prophet after Musa is a non-Jew. Anybody who believes in any type of prophet after Sayyidina Rasulullah is a non-Muslim. And they want to accept that, we will treat them as the deen of Islam teaches us to treat all non-Muslims. If they don't accept that, we won't mistreat them, but they won't have the rights. They shouldn't be viewed as a minority in your parliament. No. They won't be given minority status. They will be given outcast status. And given that their own person said that every one of us is an unbeliever, so to freak the Hogan, they've made it distinct. It's clearly a separate community. If every person who doesn't accept Qadiani is a non-believer, according to Qadiani, then it's obviously a distinct, separate, different community. So actually all we're asking them is to actually accept the implications of the word of that very person who they claim to be their prophet. And accept that they're distinct and separate and something other than what we are. Alright? Okay. More, more, more on this, more on the issue of finality of prophethood when we come to that topic. Alright, but I wanted to clear this issue of apostasy because again a lot of people are, mis- are confused about this. And I, I wish one day to do a dedicated presentation to you on that like I've done dedicated presentations on hudud laws and how people spread misrepresentation and lies and about Islam when they were trying to critique hudud laws. Just like that, many people make Islam look terrible when they're trying to critique some laws pertaining to apostasy. And when it comes, we will do the issue of blasphemy as well. All right. Um, right. Well, my yerta did this thing again. All right.
Okay, next verse, so now we're on 218. We're on 218, okay. Indeed, those who believe and those who migrated for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, وَجَاهُدُوا فِي سَبِيلَ اللَّهِ And they exerted themselves, or again, they fought the transgressors and aggressors with like aggression to remove fitna for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. أُولَٰئِكَ يَرْجُونَ رَحْمَةِ اللَّهِ They are well worthy to have the hope of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's mercy. They are the people who are truly hopeful of the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. وَاللَّهُ غُفُورُ الرَّحِيمُ And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is all forgiving, all merciful. Next, Allah Ta'ala is mentioning commands of wine and gambling. So, yes, Ulanika, they ask you, the Prophet about, so this is, uh, they ask you about khamar, which is wine or any intoxicant, and gambling, which is any game of chance. Alright. What, what, what does Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala tell? Call Omar Abdullah to respond to them, Fihima, in both of them, Ithmun Kabirun, there is a terrible sin and a terrible harm, and there's also certain benefits, certain limited benefits for the people. Here again, if you look, uh, that's, that's too much grammar to explain to you right now. وَإِثْمُهُمَا أَكْبَرُوا مِنْ نَفْئِهِمَا But the sin and harm and uh, evil of both of the two of them is greater than their benefit. So what does it mean that obviously you should leave something that has greater harm than benefit? What are the benefits of alcohol? So people say the benefit of alcohol is when I drink I feel strength, I feel enlivened. American Journal of Cardiology or New England Journal or one of those journals says that if you drink a glass of wine a day, you get so many antioxidants. One desi uncle in America tried to use this as a delay on me that he should be allowed to drink wine. So I told him you can drink pomegranate juice and that has even more antioxidants. <laughs> right? Because really the reason why he wanted to drink wasn't the antioxidants. That wasn't the reason. I don't think, I mean, you can go to any bar in England and America and ask them, are you here for the antioxidants? And they'll give you quite a slurry and blurred speech response. <laughs> All right? Okay? So this is not a good thing to do. And you know, I'll tell you, by the way, it's not that America is not a nation of drunkards. England is a bit worse and Europe is worse. I realize this now after spending a year in England. The amount that people drink in Oxford is ten times more people drank at the University of Chicago. Americans are actually the Sufis of the West, if you ask me. <laughs> really. Compared to the... And the French and Belgian, Allah Akbar Kabira. It's like, you know, how me and you may drink Pepsi or water, that's how they drink beer and wine. All right? But the good people in America, a lot of them don't drink. I knew a lot of people in college when I was growing up who didn't drink. And they didn't drink because they viewed drinking to be a bad and harmful thing. And society has so most of the drapes that happen in America is because the person is drunk. But the feminists don't seem to have a problem with alcohol. Right? And much of the car accidents that happen in America is due to drunk driving. Right? So this, is, this thing has harms. And sometimes the Muslim, you know, this is not a rational approach because the ayah that prohibits, this is not the ayah that prohibits alcohol. This ayah just says that the harm is greater than good. This is going to come later. That you must stay away from it altogether. That's coming later in Quran. But sometimes Muslims try to take a rationalist approach and say, well look, you know, I'm just drinking socially. What if I don't get drunk? Right? What if I don't, I'm drinking but I don't get drunk. So in that ayah, Allah Ta'ala said that no, you have to stay, the translation of that verse would be stay away from it altogether, for indeed it is an abomination from shaitan. It means don't take a drop of it. Right? 
don't take a drop of it. And it's unfortunate, you know, you really, uh, you'd be amazed. Don't think that your country, alhamdulillah, Pakistan is much better than countries like maybe Malaysia or Egypt or other large population Muslim countries, Turkey, where alcohol is actually freely available. But the black market here is not so hidden. Lums kids knew easily how to smuggle in alcohol, uh, easily, right? Uh, and many, many people uh, from the sort of English-educated upper-class elites, and sometimes they drink openly at parties in PC and Sindh Club in Karachi and other places. They don't even bother to hide it. They don't bother to hide it, all right? So drinking is a sin. No matter how civilized you do it, no matter what vintage of the year of the wine is, no matter how fancy crystal your glass is, Drinking is a sin against Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's commands. And it's a useless, futile activity. And it causes certain types of cancer as well. And diseases and illnesses in people who do it. Alright? So Allah ta'ala out of His love and mercy wants us to stay away from this. Same thing for gambling. Same thing for gambling. But gambling is not as prevalent. It's sad to say that drinking is more prevalent amongst Muslims. But everything I just said, you can just repeat all of that for gambling because Allah Ta'ala chose uh, the both of them have been discussed over here. Okay, next thing. But yes, okay, what's the rupt between... Uh, uh, sorry, uh, next thing. That they ask you what they should spend, that you should spend from the surplus extraneous money that you have. So this is, look at the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa He's saying that when you spend, spend, don't spend from what you need. Keep what you need for yourself. But what is beyond that, you should spend that for others. By the way, this is also the philosophy of zakat. Many people don't understand that. They think, for example, that, you know, I have this jewelry or I have this property, right? And I don't want to pay zakat on it. So you have to understand the philosophy of zakat is this simple. That member of this Muslim ummah who has more than their needs must share 2.5% of that wealth that is more than they need with those people who have less than they need. So no matter if you think that, no, I have this 20 lakh property and if I pay 2.5% on it every year, then I don't know I don't know the math, but let's say in 20 years I will have paid 10 lakh zakat on it. Something like that, right? In 20 years I'd pay 5 to 10 lakh on it. Yes, but every single year, the fact that you are so well off and so comfortable that you have this backup stash of a 20 lakh property means that the right of the poor people over you who are so poor below the Islamic poverty line, which is very low, to be eligible for zakat, you have to be, so to speak, quote-unquote, it's not a nice term, but dirt poor. It means that person who is so poor has a right over you that you have such a level of comfort. So you have to give it. Yes, even if even if in 20 years you end up paying 10 lakhs of zakat, no problem. You weren't going to pay it at once, you're going to pay it every year. Every year that you lived with that sukoon and tasalli that if my business drops, I can sell this property even at loss, but I have a backup. And that poor person was living in complete day-to-day situation. So you have to share some of that sukoon and tasalli. You have to give shukr for that sukoon and tasalli, for that za'id, that extraneous that Allah Ta'ala gave you. Don't be so coldly calculating and thinking that, oh, I would, what's the point of even having the property if I have to pay zakat on it? Allahu Akbar Kameera. Al-Aman al-Hafi shouldn't think like that. That's like saying, what's the point of having a blessing from Allah if I have to give thanks for it? Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raji'un. And really you would be amazed at this as well. I should have done this when it came, but how much the upper class elites of this country don't pay their zakat. It amazes me. 
amazes me. Right? Here, so this is how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala this is how Spontan mentions clearly his signs and his manifestations and ayat can also mean ahkam, his laws and rulings to you so that you may become people who reflect on the necessity of following those laws who reflect on your servitude to Allah Spontan, who reflect that you are indeed an abd of that rub who wants you to behave and act in a certain way and you reflect upon your situation and act in that way and this is you will reflect concerning your world and you will reflect concerning the Akhirah. They will ask you concerning the orphans, right? Now this will happen because Allah Ta'ala had mentioned so much that the orphans' wealth is so precious. So sometimes people who were guardians and caretaker of the orphans, so they had to, for example, make food for them. Now you make a pot of food. Now how do you know how much of it was spent using the trust that was set up for the orphan? How much of it was your own money? You cannot precisely tell. Right? How many bites should go to the orphan? How many bites should go to you? So this shows again taqwa of sahaba. That they were so muttaqi. So muttaqi that they were so worried about how to do this. So here Allah Ta'ala gave them then some guidelines in the sense that, okay, look, as long as you're near to pure and to the best of your ability, you are keeping their wealth and your wealth separate. Right? So what should you do? So here Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala says, uh, That the fact that you do Islah, you do it properly. Islah is not just Salah, but it means to do it properly, that you do well and good by them, by taking care of them, that is better for you. Than not taking care of them because you're worried that what if ek pesak unch nicho. As long as your niyat is not to do so, then that is fine. It's better that you do take care of them, even though hypothetically, rationally, ek pesak unch nicho. That's what Allah SWT is saying here. Alright? وَإِن Alright, now this means, this is the issue of when you combine, when you mix and your property and their property and when you eat and live with them jointly, well that's not a problem. For ikhwanukum, for indeed they are your brethren indeed, they are your fellow mu'mineen. Wallahu ya'lamul mufsidu min al Allah knows the wrongdoer versus the rightdoer. Allah will know who is trying to live with them to take over their money, and who is living with them to be a guardian. Allah Ta'ala knows that. You don't have to worry. وَلَوْ شَاءَ اللَّهُ لَأَعْنَتَكُمْ That if Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala wants لَأَعْنَتَكُمْ Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala can place you in difficulty. Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala can push you in difficulty if He so wished. إِنَّ اللَّهَ عَزِيزٌ حَكِيمٌ Indeed, Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala is almighty, all wise. Okay. Now comes another ayah, so we are here on number 221. وَلَا تَنْكِهُ الْمُشْرِكَاتِ حَتَّى يُؤْمِنَ وَلَا تَنْكِهُ الْمُشْرِكَاتِ حَتَّى يُؤْمِنَ That you should not marry the idol-worshipping women. So Allah is telling the men that don't marry idol-worshipping women. So you can think in South Asian context, don't marry a Hindu woman. Yes. Or don't marry an atheist. Anyone who doesn't, atheism or agnosticism or Hinduism or Buddhism or any of those things, Allah Ta'ala is forbidden, you cannot marry them. Cannot marry them. And to show how much Allah Ta'ala stresses this, He says, وَلَا أَمَتُمْ مُؤْمِنَةٌ That a female woman who is a slave but a believer is خَيْرٌ مُنْ مُشْرِكَةٍ is better than a free woman who is an idol worshipper. So this is a sign for us, even though slavery is no longer around, but this is a sign. What does it mean? It means a lower class believer is better than a higher upper class Hindu. That's what it means. Alright? 
for purposes of marriage. Now the boy should listen. Even if she dazzles you with her beauty. That's what it means. Even if you are bedazzled by her beauty or bedazzled by her personality. That no, we both went to college together and we're such great friends. And you know, I know she's Hindu, but I'll never find anybody like her. That's an eight. Even if you are dazzled by her personality or by her beauty, you cannot do it. La tankahu, these words are standing on top of you. Alright? Okay. Mushrikina, And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying that and women should not be wedded. Women should not be wedded to idol-worshipping men. A Muslim woman should not marry a Hindu man. And whenever this happens, this is tragedy. I view this in a family as a tragedy. And that Hindu husband, then what does he do? He goes to the younger brothers of his wife. And he makes the younger brothers of his wife go into drinking. I've seen with my own life experience, if I couldn't see it with my eyes, the effects of this. That a woman should not marry a Hindu man. Women should not be wedded to Hindu men. Alright? Hatta yu'minu until and unless they truly believe. This doesn't mean saying the kalima so Mawbisab reads the nikah. Asana. That means nothing. Iman is real belief and conviction in the heart. Wala amdun mu'minun khairun min mushrikin. And same thing Allah is telling the women. That a lower class, it literally means the slave believer, a lower class Muslim is better than an upper class Hindu. It's better. Alright? And same thing, even if they bedazzle you, telling the Muslim women, that even if the Hindu guys got a great personality, nobody's really nice, and I don't know, women love to say this, and they, they do ilzam on all the Muslim men. You think that in the entire Muslim ummah, there's not a good boy? <laughs> No, it can't be like that. After all, your brothers are from the same ummah, your father is from the same ummah, your cousins are from the same ummah, right? Ula'ika yad'una ila nar. Allahu Akbar. Ula'ika yad'una ila nar. These people are inviting you to Jahannam. So always remember, there is no evading the Qur'an. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, this is what's going to happen, this is what's going to happen. As when you do it, these people will invite you one way or the other to the way of hellfire. In fact, even literally, when a Muslim woman, when she marries a Hindu man, then what is the Muslim woman supposed to expect to do? To do sati, to burn herself, have herself cremated. I've unfortunately had the deepest tragedy of my life, and one of the deep tragedies to have known about such an experience is about. Right? Don't, don't do it. Wallahu yadu ilal jannah. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is inviting you to, is inviting to Jannah, wal maghfirati bi'idhnihi, and forgiveness according to His will and wish and permission and decree. Alright, so this is Allah ta'ala setting it up. Look how beautiful Allah ta'ala is saying it, you're choosing them over me. You're choosing what they're going to call you from, because if they're not, if they haven't converted, then that means they are on some other philosophy, ideology, religion. And that other philosophy, ideology, religion that they're on will eventually affect you. Don't choose them over me. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions His verses and signs to humanity so that they may become people who get nasiha from it. So they may get some warning and advice and they may learn from it. Next thing, So they ask you the Prophet about menstruation. So, right, so this is the menstrual period of a woman. This is a particular type of bleeding that a woman has. Kul huwa adhan. 
tell them that this is an impurity in the sense of two things. So there are certain bodily fluids that are impure. So a man's semen is impure. For a woman, her menstrual blood is impure. All right, so there's gender parity there. Second, when a man, when a man's semen exits through desire, he becomes impure. He has to take ghusl. And when a woman menstrual blood exits her, and when it ends, then in order for her to become pure again, she has to make ghusl. So gender parity there as well. Third, it also means that because it's an impurity, you don't want to um, have relations with your spouse during these days. All right. So this is actually the ruling that has been given. Okay, so this is what is coming next. That you should refrain from, right, your wives during those that period of their menstrual of their menstrual days. Okay. Don't even go near them. So this is where different than jurists have said what exactly you're allowed to do. So that's not for me to discuss with you right here, right now. until they become pure. So some have said yet hurna because there's only one ha means until their menstrual bleeding stops. But idatataharna with two ha's and when they obtain purity by means of ghusl, fatu hunna min haythu amarakumullah that you may uh, go unto them as in the manner in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has commanded and allowed you to do. In Allah yuhibbu tawabin wa yuhibbul muttaqeen. Second two came. So three out of seven here. In Allah yuhibbu tawabin that indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala loves the people who often make tawbah to Him wa yuhibbul mutatahhirin and loves the people who keep making themselves pure. So when you see the shadda which you call tashdeed right and shadda this comes in Arabic for intensity of meaning. So tawab means not a person who makes tawbah once. That's ta'ib. Tawab is that person who always makes tawbah. That never ever will a sin, will he or she do a sin, except that he or she makes tawbah. She lives a life of tawbah. He's always making tawbah. So that person Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala loves tremendously. This is also one of the greatest mercies of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Many of you know one of my most repeated ayat to you in the different talks that I give. That Allah ta'ala has even, Allah ta'ala could have said, إِنَّ اللَّهَ يَغْفِرُ التَّوَابِينَ Allah ta'ala forgives the person who makes tawbah. But no. Allah Ta'ala took it a higher level. That that same level of belovedness that you would have gotten if you were muttaqeen and not sinned, if you sin but make true tawbah to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He will not just forgive you for those sins, but He will give you that same level which is mahbubiyyah, which is belovedness due to your tawbah. إِنَّ اللَّهُ يُحِبُّ التَّوَابِينَ وَيُحِبُّ الْمُتَطَحِّرِينَ And those who make themselves impure, when they always purify themselves. So this can mean many things. This can mean physically, this can also mean spiritually in terms of their emotions, this can mean even in terms of their thoughts. So they are constantly waging this battle in terms of impure emotions and thoughts and feelings, always trying to bring themselves back to the pure. Leaving impure gatherings, coming to pure gatherings, then they slip back again to the impure gathering, they bring themselves back to the pure gathering, that is mutatahirin. And it can also mean those who remain established on their wudu. It can also be taken in the outward physical sense. That your women literally means they're, they're literally means their fields for you. That you can enter onto your fields uh, in whichever way that you want. Maybe one thing I will just tell you here. Remember I told you Lam is for ikhtisal. So it means that your wives are only for you. And this is where Allah subhanahu is talking about the fidelity. Right? And it's same uh, that your wives are only and only for you. Uh, 
that you should fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and you should know that indeed you are the people who are going to be meeting him. Right? You are mulaquhu, you are the people who are going to be meeting him. Okay. I left this, I didn't translate this one part here. وَقَدِّمُوا لِأَنفُسِكُمْ وَقَدِّمُوا means and send forth before you لِأَنفُسِكُمْ those good deeds that will be of benefit. Here Lam is for nafa, the anfusikum that that will be of benefit to your own selves in the akhirah. وَبَشِّرُ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ and Nabi Akram Sallam give glad tidings to the believers. وَلَاتَجْلُ اللَّهَ أُرْضَةً لِأَيْمَانِكُمْ Okay, here comes another ruling. This is about oaths, taking kasam. All right. So there are different types of kasams in the Deen of Islam. First type of kasam is what we call kasam al-law, which means just futile, nonsensical, meaningless, has no effect type of kasam. That is a custom that if you take something on a past event, you take something about something that happened in the past. It's irrelevant because it already happened. So you're taking an oath means nothing. It, what happened, happened. It's already a factual event. It's already occurred in the past. There's a second type of custom, which is a custom that a person may take about something they will do in the future. That type of custom then is viewed in Islam as an oath. It's called yameen. It's plural as aiman. Not iman, it's yameen in singular, and aiman is the plural of that. Okay? Alright. In that, if you are true to that custom, then there's no problem. If you break that custom, then you have to offer what is called kafaratul yameen. You have to offer the expiation or compensation for breaking an oath. Okay. Now, we hear what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying. So now, this group of ayat that we're doing is going to be starting from 2 20. Five. 224? 224 onward. Okay? Okay, the first thing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to say is going about the don't invoke your oaths by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What I have here is urdatan, is object of our oaths. Either way, don't make Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala the means by which, it means the name of Allah. Right? People say in Urdu, Allah ki qasam, Allah ki qasam, Allah ki qasam. People say in Arabic, Wallahi, Wallahi, Wallahi. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do that. Okay? Antabarru. If you want to be Literally it says antabarru, but in Arabic the tafsir says a an But it means is that it's going to against your, literally antabarru means that you do good. Here it's saying that it will stand against your doing good. It will stand against your doing good if you take the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And you should instead have nas, And you should try to do sulah between people. What does that mean? That sometimes when people in an argument and they get stubborn to prove their point, they swear. Right? So saying, don't even let people reach that level of disputation where they feel the need to swear an oath on the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Before that, try to patch up between them to do sulah between them. Alright. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will not hold you accountable. Oh, uh, sorry. Wallahu samir alim. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is all hearing and all knowing. La yu'akhidukum. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will not call you to account and make you accountable. La yu'akhidumullahu billagwi. I told you, right? That was the first type of custom law that is... That is Ineffectual. Fi aymanikum in those of your oaths that have no standing in Sharia. Walakin, 
يُؤَخِذُكُمْ However, He will take you to account بِمَا كَسَبَتْ Based on the things that indeed that you do. In other words, the true oaths that you swear that you break them and they end up being false. بِمَا كَسَبَتْ قُلُوبُكُمْ What your spiritual hearts do. Now, interestingly, your kasam is an act of the tongue. But here Allah Ta'ala is saying is what your spiritual hearts do. What Allah Ta'ala was showing was that Allah is saying, I know that whenever jawab juti kasam khate ho na, to aap zibaan se to kasam khare magad dil mein irada juta hai. To ye dil ka amal hai. To when you take a false oath on your tongue, on your tongue you're saying, I swear by Allah I'm going to do ABC. But at that very moment your heart fully intends not to do it. So your heart is what's getting the sin. Because the words itself aren't sinful to say. It's the intention of the heart to never do that thing that you're swearing to do in the future, right? That is uh, a sin. Wallahu ghafoorun haleem. However, if you ask Allah Ta'ala to forgive you after you have done so, then you will find that Allah Ta'ala is all forgiving. And haleem means Allah Ta'ala is all forbearing, means that when He had the right to punish you, He withholds Himself. He withholds His power. That's haleem is that being who withholds His power to punish even though He is able and well within his right to do so, but still doesn't punish, that is called Halim. Alright, next, from the next ayahs, from 2.26 onward, is coming several rulings pertaining to marriage and divorce. Okay? The first one is something called Ilah. Let me explain it first, because there's a very grave misconception in Pakistani society, and several women across the years have asked me this question. Ilah means that if a husband takes a qasam about a future act, remember when you take a qasam about something in the future, then that has a legal implication. If he takes an oath that in the future, for four months or more, he says, four months or more, I will not have relations with my wife. And then for four months indeed, he does not have relations with his wife. Then when the four-month period completes and he then is shown to be true, at least in his oath, he did a terrible thing, but at least he was, not at least, but he was factually true to his oath, then one divorce takes place, one talaq, which is called talaq ibain, which I'll explain to you the different types of divorce later. One divorce of the three takes place. But this is if he took a qasam, some Pakistani women think that if my husband, because he's upset with me, or because he's out of country, or for whatever reason, does not have relations with me for four months, talaq ho jati. No, talaq doesn't happen in of itself due to not having the relations. Ilah is only when the husband invokes a qasam and says that he won't have relations and says either a time period of four months or more and then that time period of at least four months passes, then a talaq takes place. Alright? Okay. So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala لِلَّذِينَ يُؤْلُونَ يُؤْلُونَ means those who do ilah. Those who do ilah. So those who, okay, he's translated to those who swear, who take an oath, that they will abstain from their wives for four months. Okay? If they revert back, if they revert back, what does that mean? فَإِنْ If they do rujua to their spouse, فَإِنَّ اللَّهُ غُفُورٌ رَحِيمٌ What does that mean? They should break their oath. They should break it. They shouldn't think, now I've done a custom and now I'm stuck. No. Breaking is better. That's what I'm saying. Break it, and you and and you will and make the kafara. What you will do is you will make the kafara for breaking the oath. But you will find Allah Taala is forgiving and merciful because Allah Taala doesn't want women to get divorced. So break the oath, offer the kafara, the expiation for the oath. You will find Allah Taala is forgiving, all forgiving, and all merciful. Now this is a separate issue. That if a, if a, if people uh, intend to divorce. Right? 
فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ سَمِيعٌ عَلِيمٌ Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is sorry. If their intention was divorce, if indeed their intention is to do this by means of divorce, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is all, know, all listening and all knowing. In other words, let's say a person knew the masala, knew that this was a way of giving divorce. And he chose to give divorce in this way, by doing this qasam and then by not having it for four months. So if that's their intention, that the lock will take place. But even then Allah ta'ala is telling them, you're not going to find me ghufurun rahim. What are you going to find if you choose to divorce the wife through this way? You're going to find Samiun Alim, I'm listening and knowing and immediately, intensely aware of everything that you're doing. So it's actually Allah Ta'ala trying to dis- disincentivize a person from doing this. Now comes the issue of talaq. Now, now just move that away. Forget Ilah now, and now we move to standard divorce. Now a woman who is divorced in the deen of Islam, she has to spend something called an idda. Idda is a waiting period. Where in a sense you can say a woman is in between, she's kind of in limbo. It's only when the idda ends that she is now free to marry somebody else. Right? So how long is that idda, that waiting period? So it depends on the nature of the idda. So first idda is the idda of the divorcee. This is not idda of the widow. Right? And there are going to be types of divorcees and types of widows, pregnant and non-pregnant. And where it's coming, rukhsati or non-rukhsati. These are all the cases that we're going to be looking at. Right? I am not actually want to teach you the fiqh of talaq. I'm just going to teach you enough so that you understand the translation. I'm only going to teach you enough so that you understand the translation. Otherwise, the laws of divorce and marriage are things that you should know, but that will have to be done for another type of course. All right. So those women who have been divorced, they should hold, literally means hold themselves back. It means they should withdraw into a state of iddat, thalathat al-quru'in, for three menstrual cycles. For three menstrual cycles. So when, from the moment when that woman receives her divorce, then she shall wait, she shall pass one menstrual period, a second one, and a third one. When the third one ends, now she is, it has ended, and now she's free to marry. So that's what they're really holding themselves back from. Okay? Alright. وَلَا يَهِلُ it is not befit them and is not in fact permissible for them that they should hide or conceal what Allah subhanahu has given creation to in their wombs. In other words, if they're pregnant, they must disclose that. Why? Because the idd for a pregnant woman is different. That woman who is divorced and she is pregnant, then the idd is the term of her entire pregnancy. So why maybe a woman naturally, if she's three months pregnant, then she's going to have to wait six months. And most women have a menstrual cycle roughly once a month. So three menstrual cycles meant three months. So if she's pregnant and hides it, she can get out in three months. No. Allah Ta'ala is saying is that you have to disclose it if you're pregnant. And the idat of a pregnant divorcee is however long it takes is childbirth. The delivery may be a week. The idat may be a week. It can be less than three months. It could be a week. could be a month. can be four months. can be eight months. Whatever it is. Okay. In Allah is addressing the women that if indeed the women believe in Allah spawned on the day of judgment, they will not hide the fact that they are pregnant. It means their husbands. Have that right to take them back. Have the right to take them back. In that period of the Indat, in Aradu, if they so wish, Islahan as an act of conciliation, as an act of goodness. So that's another, this is one of the philosophies behind having an iddat of a divorced woman is that it gives a time period for them to patch up. It gives the possibility of them patching up and that's really what Allah Ta'ala wants. 
ideally they should catch up. Alright? وَلَهُنَّ مِثْلُ الَّذِي عَلَيْهِنَّ بِالْمَعْرُوفِ What does it mean, Lam is here for istihqaq, that the, those women, the divorced women, have rights similar to what? Miss alayhinna, similar to the lights that are due upon them, bil maruf. In other words, the women have rights for them as much as rights are due on them to give others. As they're owed as much as they owe others. Right? So just as much as the husband insists on that the wife should fulfill his rights over her, she also has the same amount, same kind, same level. Maybe not exactly the same specific type of rights, but the same level of rights, the same mythal of rights, built maruf according to custom and convention. What does maruf mean when it comes to Quran? It means to what is normally socially acceptable in an Islamic society. It's not talking about the norms of a society that is on karokara or tribalism or feudalism or something like that. So what would be maruf? Another way you can consider that what would be considered to be noble and virtuous by all family members. That's maruf. What would be considered to be good by the people of the time. For example, if it means financial support, so how much financial support does the husband or the wife? What's considered based on her socioeconomic background, her type of lifestyle she had with her parents, that's the type of right of lifestyle she has over her husband. That's the ma'roof. Alright? Okay. Now we have this ayah, right, which would life would be easy for us if we could just translate it and keep going. But Allah SWT says in the Quran that for the men... Alayhinna over them is a daraja, is a level. This much I can say that Allah Ta'ala didn't say darajat, He said daraja. So what it, in literally, I mean, what would it mean in Quran that Allah Ta'ala has given men one notch, one notch of rights over women? Okay, alright. First of all, this is in Quran, this is a fact. So there is no searching for the meaning cannot be done with the intention of searching for justification. I can, my tafsir does not justify Qur'an. Allah, may Allah save us from any such idea in myself or any of our listeners. Right? Qur'an is justified in of itself. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is self-justified, is justified in of Himself. But searching for meaning, so if it cannot be done for justification, but it can be done for understanding. For example, a woman or a man, either one, would think that what exactly is that daraja that a man has over a woman? This has to do, simply speaking, with the Islamic concept of Amir. That whatever there is a multiple or group or a collectivity, the Islamic etiquette, whether it's a group of women, whether it's a group of men, or whether it's a group called a household which is made up of men and women, the Islamic philosophy of managing human relations is in all three cases, all women group, all men group, or mixed groups such as household, there will be an emir. There will have to be an emir. At the end of the day, there will be a manager, an ultimate decision maker. Right? That's the darajah that Allah subhanahu wa has made the man the emir. Now the way men and women should understand this is the next thing, what should be looked at, and I don't have time to do that for you now, what should be looked at is all the hadith that talk about how a person should be amir. Now even those hadith are more precisely suited to the issue of political leadership, but they are generally, and in according to the scholars of the deen, they refer to every type of leadership. And when you realize what a sensitive responsibility Allah Ta'ala has placed on any type of leader, Right? And how much that leader has to fulfill and put the rights and wishes of his 
followers or subordinates or members of the group, as leader of the group, right? Before his own personal wishes. So the two things, just to give you a summary, that what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Nabiya Kareem have mentioned about the Amir in the governmental or Ummah community sense, two things. Number one, that they must put the will and wish of Allah Ta'ala and His Messenger, Allah Ta'ala subhanahu wa ta'ala, Messenger Sallallahu and Deen of Islam, above their own wishes and the group members, the group leader has to put that above the group members' wishes. And number two, the group leader has to put the group members' wishes above his own wishes as long as they don't go against the preference or wishes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's Messenger. That's how a person is supposed to be a mirror. So that's the type of a mirror Allah Ta'ala has made a husband. Of course, many, many husbands don't know that and don't realize that and don't act like that. But that's the daraja, the daraja of being an amir. And that's why it's very important that men should study. Not for purpose of politics, but for purpose of how to be a husband and head of household. The different ahadith that Nabiya Kareem Sassan has mentioned about being an amir. Alright. Wallahu azizun hakim, but Allah Ta'ala is, is Allah Ta'ala, you can say, jirki dere marko. So don't think you got one notch of being an Amir. Allah is Aziz and Hakim is Almighty and All Wise. You're not in many. So husbands, some, there are some husbands who, that's what they think. They're the Almighty and the All Wise. Sometimes wives in Urdu, I think they even mockingly say this to the husband. Khuda garagya. I mean, you know, they're not saying it in the shirk sense, but that's how they refer to the husband. So it shouldn't be the husband's not supposed to say, Allah is not saying, that's not what you're supposed to think. All right. Atalaqum marjatam. Alright, now what happens here, this is an issue of three divorces. Alright, if you can see, I'm not giving you a break, I'll let you out a little bit early today, that's what I'll do. Alright? <laughs> no point in giving you a break right now at 4.30. Okay? at There are three times you can give talaq. This itself is the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If talaq was just once, then just by giving one talaq, then marriage would end. There's a great misconception in Pakistan, extremely widespread misconception about divorce. And what does it mean to have three divorces? When a man issues, pronounces one divorce, husband pronounces one divorce on his wife. After that one divorce, you don't need three. After that one divorce, the husband and wife are now separated. They're separated. Immediately the woman's iddat starts. Immediately that very second the woman's iddat starts. The only difference is, is that if only one divorce has been issued, then the iddat is a waiting period during which reconciliation is possible. Reconciliation is possible. Now there's a bit more specific ruling and there's a certain way that you can reconcile just like that. And sometimes the divorce may be more severe that the, the way to reconcile is to, to do the nikah again. But either way, reconciliation is possible. In a second, in, in, okay, now in three divorces, the only difference between one and three divorces is that if a person pronounces three divorces on his wife, now reconciliation is no longer possible. Not even with nikah again with her is it possible. That's it. So, sep- so separation occurs through one talaq. Irreversible separation occurs through three talaqs. There's no need whatsoever actually ever to give three talaqs. There's no need for that. Why? Because once the iddat ends on a woman who has been given one talaq, she's free completely, irreversibly. The man cannot reconcile with her. 
So there's no benefit to the woman and no benefit. There's absolutely, I'm saying this with a lot of responsibility here. There's absolutely no benefit whatsoever to either the husband or the wife to ever give or take more than one talaq. So then why did Allah Ta'ala do this? Allah Ta'ala said that, okay, there has to be a limit, right? That the husband keeps giving talaq, keeps giving talaq, because why? Allah Ta'ala views the marriage as taking place in His name. And Allah Ta'ala feels that this husband is not doing qadr of this ni'mah that I've given him called a wife. How long will I let him keep divorcing her until I pull the plug? So Allah Ta'ala says, I pulled the plug on three. I pulled the plug on three. If thrice you divorced her, then you are not worthy of keeping her anymore. You have shown yourself incapable of reconciling with her, so I pulled the plug, now it's irreversible. Alright? Now if the woman says, no, it's okay, I'm happy to go back to him. Allah Ta'ala is protecting her as well. He's saying that you clearly, you know, like in medical law, for example... You know, we have minors or people who are not, do not have capacity to act on their own. So this woman who has been divorced thrice and still wants to go back to that fellow is viewed by Allah SWT as no longer having the capacity to act on her own. No matter how much she wants to go back, Allah Ta'ala says no. There is one thing that will restore her capacity and ability to act on her own. And that is Allah Ta'ala says, okay, if you marry somebody else, now you've seen what another man is like. You've seen how another man can be a husband. If after that, then you still prefer the first one, right? Then we'll say, okay, now you're acting on the basis of capacity. Alright? Now you have the capacity to decide, because you've seen something else, and you're still choosing that person, then Allah Ta'ala says, okay, then you can go back to the first husband. But of course, how are you going to leave the second husband? That's only going to happen if the second husband willingly, genuinely, gives you a talaq. Or maybe the second husband may pass away. Right? Okay. Alright, so these are the rulings that are coming over here and I may be able to just now translate this for you a bit faster. Okay, another issue that comes is this issue of number of talaqs. Maybe I can just knock that out over here. Some people say that if a husband in a state of anger gives talaq, then talaq doesn't happen. No. As our Asatas and Mashaikh used to say, that no one gives a talaq in the Right? Just like no one gives a talaq in the talaq. Now, no one gives a talaq in the talaq. I have given a talaq say, you're still a criminal. Right? If you murder someone out of anger, the murder took place, has complete legal force and effect. Just like that if you divorce someone out of anger, the divorce is absolutely count. 100% divorce has occurred. Second mistake people think is that if you issue three divorces together, which is again because the Pakistani and many other men have not been trained that there's no need to give three, some of them either have this misconception that only if they give three is it a divorce, and some of them know but they want at that moment, maybe because of their anger, they want to be mean and give all three. If you give three divorces, even in one sentence, even in one second, simple math, three equals three. Three does not equal one. And a proof for this is the Sahih Hadith in the Sunan of An-Nisa'i. Where once a Sahaba did this. Sahaba did it. Sahaba gave three divorces to his wife in one shot. Wife came to the Prophet and told him, Sayyidina Rasulullah Sallallahu color of his face turned. Allahu Akbar, you would not want to be that Sahaba. Huh? Sayyidina Rasulullah Sallallahu color of his face turned. 
so much. He didn't say anything. Just the color of his face turned. Now watch the other Sahaba. This was their love for the Prophet They were looking at the Prophet The color of his face turned. They said, Ya Rasulullah, we'll go kill him. Allah Akbar. Yes, it's in the sign. They said, we'll go kill him. That one who caused your color to turn. We'll go kill him. This is their ishq. Ishq of Rasulullah So Sayyidina Rasulullah no, don't kill him. Right? Now you tell me if three equaled one, there's nothing really for the Prophet to be so upset about. They can just reconcile between them. Right? The Prophet is obviously upset extremely. Why? Because three equaled three. Irreconcilable separation has taken place between these two. And in all the other hadith where one talaq is mentioned, the Prophet never got upset. So if three equaled one, this should have been just like the other hadith. He would have called them and joined them. And that's why the Prophet was extra upset because the Prophet is saying, which is in ab mere haat ke ikhtiyar se baat nikal di. Ab jab Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu ke ikhtiyar mein nahi hai, ke teen talaq ke baad mein dono ko dobara jhur do, to kisi bhi speaker, scholar, alim, mufti ke bhi jhurit nahi. Is that simple? Because nobody loved to join the husband and wife back again after divorce as much as the Prophet some did. Alright? So another misconception that people have. Yes, there was one or two scholars in the 7th and 8th century, Ibn Taymiyyah and Ibn Qayyim al-Juziyah, who was his student, who believed that three talaqs equal one. Then Ibn Qayyim's student, Ibn al-Rajab al-Hanbali, so the third in their line, he actually wrote a risala. He actually wrote a treatise explaining that three equals one. Then when it circulated in the Muslim empire, so he panned down the views of Ibn Taymiyyah and Ibn Qayyim, and it circulated in the Muslim empire, and then other scholars gave their feedback. You see, Islamic scholarship is about peer review. It's not a one-man show. You can't have Ibn Taymiyyah, great, beautiful scholar. But no one can be a just a one-man show. There must be peer review. There must be scholarly review. There must be consultation. When the other ulama gave their comments, Ibn al-Rajab al-Hanbali himself wrote another risala which still exists today in which he retracted the position of him and Ibn Qayyim and Ibn Taymiyyah and wrote in great detail how they were mistaken in their original position. And after him also, for century, after he did that, then for centuries again nobody followed this position. But in the 1900s somebody went back in history and just plucked out Ibn Taymiyyah's fatwa. Not looking at that for the first 700 years nobody gave this ruling. And after Ibn Taymiyyah's student, student retracted it for another four or five hundred years, nobody gave this ruling. So we cannot, when somebody does something, we can't undo their consequences. You see, actions have consequences. People have to realize that. Now you should think, you said one sentence, nikah ho gaya, right? So don't think people say that, ye bas kuch alfaz te, right? Allah ke bande, aapne alfaz hi se nikah ke, right? It was just your words by which she became halal on you. So why are you so shocked that it's again, once again, your words that make her haram on you? That same Allah Ta'ala who gave you the power with one word, kabiltu, to make her halal on you, that same Allah put the power in three words, talaq, to make her haram on you. So these rational, this, this rational approach to some is completely irrational and nonsensical and against the commandments of Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala. So first people should try never to have talaq. Second, if it happens, they should issue one talaq. And if they still don't want to reconcile, and sometimes 
It is, you have such an unfortunate situation where the couple can't get along, and maybe it is actually better for them to go their separate ways. Keep it at one talaq, and after the idat end, she can go and marry whoever she wants, and everything is finished. You never need to issue more than one talaq. Alright. Now we're going to race through this translation, because I think I can probably read many, many ayahs, and I'll just read yours so I can go even faster. Here, Pirbi, I still... Divorce occurs tw- if divorce occurred twice. Okay. Divorce, what does it mean? You should read it. Divorce, reconcilable divorce. Reconcilable divorce has two steps. Has two, can take place twice. Reconcilable divorce, that's how I would translate. Reconcilable divorce can take place twice. Then, if they retain in offer, imsaqun bi ma'rufin, if they retain her, if they take her back after the two, so you can reconcile after the two, that is better. And if you do it in the best way, tasihun bi ihsan, and they haste, or they can release her quickly. What is going on here actually? What happened is, what, one, what happened once was, uh, one woman came to the Prophet and said that, you know, my husband has said he's going to divorce me, and let almost the three months pass and then take me back. And then he'll divorce me again, and then almost three minutes of Idlul and take me back. So he's sort of playing. So Allah Ta'ala sent a revelation, no, this is not a game. Don't make women spend Idlul just like that. Either after two stages of divorce have taken place and is still reconcilable, either reconcile or let her go. Right? Okay. It is not lawful for you. It's not permissible for you to take back anything from what you have given them. So if you gave your wife anything, put any property in her name, gave her any money, it is hers. You can't take it back then that you divorced. If you gave her a set, this is a big thing in Pakistan, whatever jewelry that Sas gave that woman, if that man divorces that woman, that jewelry is hers. And if she had kept it as an amanat still with the Sas, because she was nice or innocent or didn't know better, the Sas cannot keep it in her safe. It belongs to that wife who has now been divorced. Could not take anything back from her. Alright, unless both apprehend that they would not be able to maintain the limits set by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. فَإِنْ خِفْتُمْ أَلَّا يُكِيمَا هُدُودَ اللَّهِ And if you fear that you will not be able to, sorry, if you fear that you will not be able to establish the limits set by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then there is no harm on both of you if you are willing to waive that. Okay. Now what is this, right, what is being given up here? This is being mentioned now about the meher as well. So I give an example, jury, if you've given the wife the meher, you can't take it back. If, however, the wife wishes to waive part of her meher, right? Let me explain this about meher also. Meher, and that's coming very quickly, I think. Meher is that amount that the husband has to give the wife. Has to give the wife, not has to give if the divorce occurs, has to give it. It's haq. That's why they call it haq mer. It's a haq. It's a right upon you. The only difference is that you don't have to give it necessarily the day of nikah. You have your life to give it. Sometimes people set an incredibly large amount of meher, 20 lakhs, 30 lakhs, because they think that's a deterrent to divorce. No. It's not going to be paid just in divorce. It has to be paid anyway. So you should only set that amount of meher. You should set it reasonably well, but it should be the amount that the husband can foreseeably afford in the near future because he does have to pay it. The only difference is, is that before divorce, delaying payment is permissible. Once divorce occurs, delaying is no longer permissible and the wife is entitled to demand it entirely. And this is what Allah was saying, that he should give it quickly. But if she's willing to forgive part of it, 
or maybe let him have more time to pay it, she can do that. But it's better for him not to take this concession from her and that he should give all of it anyway, even if she says, I don't want all of it. That's what Allah Ta'ala is going to say in the Quran. So the English here is not going to be that clear. All right? So now if you apprehend that they would not maintain limits set by Allah, then there is no sin on them and what she gives up to secure her release. These are the limits set by Allah. Therefore, do not exceed them. Whoever sees the limits set by Allah, then those are the transgressors. Thereafter, if he divorces her, she shall no longer... Thereafter, after the two... If he divorces her, i.e. again a third time, she shall no longer remain lawful for him. It's irreconcilable now. No longer lawful for him to do nikah with. No longer for him to reconcile with until and unless she marries another man other than him, that are explained to you. Should he too, that second husband, then divorce that woman, then there is no sin on the two of them returning to each other. If they think that now they can maintain the limits, means they can live according to the spousal relation that Allah Ta'ala wants them to live by. These are the limits of Allah Ta'ala and He makes them clear to people who know. When you have divorced women and they have approached the end of their waiting period, the end of their, then either this was the incident I told you about. Then either retain them with fairness or release them with fairness. Don't Take them back only with the intention to divorce them later and make them go through another iddat as a cruel, sadistic type of punishment. Don't do that. Either take them back before their iddat ends, reconcile and be loving with them, or let the iddat complete and set her free. Alright? So do not retain them with wrongful intent resulting in cruelty on your partner. Whoever does this actually wrongs himself. Do not take the verses of Allah SWT in jest. And remember the fuzzle of Allah SWT on you and what He has revealed to you of the the book and the kitab and the hikmah, the book and wisdom, giving you good counsel thereby. And fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala be sure that Allah ta'ala is the one who knows everything. When you have divorced women, so this is verse 232. When you have divorced women and they have reached the end of their iddat waiting period, do not prevent them from marrying their husbands when they mutually agree with fairness. This means, this is the incident that there was a sahaba. Hmm, this is 232. There was a sahaba Sayyidina Ma'kal ibn Yasar anhu. His sister married another sahaba, I don't know the name, let's say X, right? X divorced his sister. The iddat passed, so sister was free. But he only gave one divorce according to the sunnah teachings. Not, not the Prophet never gave divorce, but according to the way the Prophet taught, only give divorce once. After some time passed, X came back and said, I'd like to marry your sister again. And he can do that because only one divorce took place, right? You can do nikah now. Sayyidina Makal said something that many of us could understand. He said, no. He said, I gave you my sister and you failed to honor her. You failed to respect her. You divorced her. You are not worthy of her. I don't give her to you. The sister told him that, no, I want to go back to him. So now they both wanted to marry one another. So it's this ruling in deen of Islam that if two people want to marry one another and there is no objection to the deen, and that may come a bit later when we do a bit more in nikah. Today we're doing talaq. What are the compatibility issues that the deen looks at? But if there's no such issue there, and two people want to marry, well, you should not forcibly stop the woman and man from getting married. So Allah Ta'ala revealed this verse for that sahaba and sahabiyah to get married. And this doesn't mean I don't want the forlorn lovers of the world listening to this and thinking that there is some way for them, SNA, right? What it meant was within bounds of Sharia, within bounds of Haya, according to, completely according to teachings of Quran and Sunnah, they wanted to get married. And the second this verse came down, Sayyidina Maqal went to the Prophet and said, I take my position, but I'm nothing compared to Quran. 
If this is what Allah Ta'ala wants, I completely change my position. This is the greatness of Sahaba. You have never probably even heard the name of Sayyidina Ma'qal radiallahu ta'ala anhu, had you? And your Quran is being revealed in, you know, and, and, and Sahaba are submitting to it. The Sahaba are incredible people, each and every one of them. Ajma'een. Radiallahu ta'ala anhum, ajma'een. Alright. So don't prevent, do not prevent them from marrying their husbands when they mutually agree with fairness. Thus the advice is given to every one of you who believes in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the Akhirah. This is more pure and clean for you. So this is an important Arabic for you to know. ذَلِكُمْ أَزْكَى لَكُمْ وَأَتْحَرْ Azka, which means it's more pure for your heart. Athar, it's more pure for you physically and in terms of your worldly life. Azka, more pure for you in your akhirah. Athar, more pure for you in your worldly life. So it shows Allah Ta'ala is calling us not just to halal. Remember late, early we saw tayyib. Now we're seeing two more words. Quranic insan isn't just halal. Quranic insan is trying to do halal, trying to do tayyib, trying to do azka, trying to do athar also. وَاللَّهُ يَعْلَمُ وَأَنْتُمْ لَا تَعْلَمُونَ And Allah Ta'ala knows and you don't know. Therefore follow the knowledge that He has revealed to you as opposed to the knowledge that comes from your own akal. وَاللَّهُ يَعْلَمُ وَأَنْتُمْ لَا تَعْلَمُونَ Alright. We're going to stop over here. Uh, this is verse number 230. 2.32. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem. Ya Allah, we ask that you enable us to follow each and every one of your ahkam. Ya Allah, we ask that you make the true ummah muslimah become people of virtue and nobility and honor and chivalry. And Ya Allah, we ask that you erase every form of unlawful aggression and transgression in this world. That you remove all of the fitna in this world. That you remove all of the oppression in this world. And that you bring to every corner of this world the peace that the deen of Islam has promised to bring and struggle to establish Ya Allah Ya Rabbi Kareem and we ask that you accept each and every one of us for the khidmat of the service of the deen of Islam for ila'i kalimatillah Ya Allah Ya Rahman and Ya Allah Rabbi Kareem we have read today and heard today of so many of your ahkam shari of your legal rulings Ya Allah you are our Malik and we are your Amd we pledge ourselves to you we wish to be legislated by you we wish to fall under your laws we want to submit to your ahkam Ya Allah let us Submit with them in the ma'roof, in the, in the known way. And let us submit to them in the way that is tayyib and azka and athar. Let us find the tazkiyah that you have put for us in sharia. Let us find the taharat that you have placed for us in sharia. Let us become pure in heart, pure in mind, pure in tongue, pure in body, pure in spirit. Ya Allah, Ya Arhamar Rahimeen. And Ya Allah, we ask that you put barakah in all of the husbands and wives of this ummah. Protect them from the whisperings of shaitan. Protect them from the failings of their nafs. Ya Rabbi Kareem, protect them from the shayateen that walk the space of this earth in the guise of humans. Protect them from the tools in the, amongst the humans that are used by the shayateen to put discord between the husband and wife. Ya Rabbi Kareem, grant us sabr and hilm. Let us always fulfill the hukuk of others. And Ya Allah, amongst all of the ummah, anyone who is in any position of amara over others, let them decide, decide, make their decisions with hikmah and wisdom. Let them make decisions according to your wishes 
teaches and commands according to Nabi Kareem some sunnah and let them always remember the sunnah of preferring the members of the group over the leader of the group when it, when it lies within your permission and your preferences Ya Rabbi Kareem Rabbana Takabbal Minna Innaka Antas Samil Adim and Ya Rabbi Kareem for those women who have been unjustly wronged wrongfully divorced unjustly oppressed Ya Allah we ask that you spend your special rahmah on them send sabr on them let them remain steadfast on the deen let no power or might no relative or ghair ever be able to turn them away from you grant them a yaqeen in you grant them a tawakkul in you fulfill each and every one of their needs be their waqeel be their nasir be their wali ya arhamar rahimeen rabbana takabbal minna innaka antas samil adeem wa tubu alayna innaka anta tawabur rahim wa sallallahu ta'ala ala habibihi sayyidina muhammad wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'een birahmatika ya arhamar rahimeen amin Did you get the flyers about the new times?